This is a pledge-isode. I'm David Feldman, davidfeldmanshow.com, and today I ask you for money. I'm going to ask you to go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. Okay, all flight controllers, go, no, go for landing. Retro, go, Fido, go, guidance, go, control, go, telecom, go, GNC, go, ECOM, go, surgeon, go, Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're a go for landing, over. Roger, understand, go for landing, 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. You're listening to a pledge-isode of the David Feldman Show. I'm asking you for money. Now, before I tell you why you should donate, let me first tell you how to donate. And there's only one way. You have to go to davidfeldmanshow.com. You'll see a donate button. There are several donate buttons. It's easy to find. The donate button will take you to our PayPal account, and we accept all major credit cards. You don't have to have a PayPal account. PayPal is the intermediary who secures the transaction to make sure your information is safe. All you need is a credit card. It takes seconds to donate. You can become a monthly subscriber or you can donate once. It's up to you. This is a pledge episode. I'm David Feldman. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com and please give us money. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Let us now go down to Georgia where Ben Burgess, Dr. Ben Burgess, is standing by. He is a philosophy professor and the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, a columnist for Jacobin. He does a segment called The Debunk every week on the Michael Brooks Show. He teaches philosophy at Perimeter College, Georgia State University. Go to his Patreon account and sign up for his uh, essays. Hey, Bernie Sanders was right about Cuba. Ben Burgess wrote that this week over at Jacobin. Thank you for coming on again. Let's talk about Bernie Sanders, his interview on 60 Minutes, and how it was twisted. What did he do on 60 Minutes? What did he say on 60 Minutes? Yeah, so uh, he basically said three things. It's a very short clip. People can, you know, can watch for themselves. Uh, the first thing he said was that Cuba was authoritarian, and he condemned that. Uh, the last thing he said was that he condemned uh, Cuba for uh, for imprisoning political dissidents. The thing that he said in between that everybody's in a tizzy about is that uh, Cuba had a very effective literacy program. Mm -hmm. So uh, what what I said in the article is that, you know, most responses to this kind of pretended that he didn't say the first thing or the third thing. They just focus on the second thing. 
Uh, and of course he's, he's been very consistent in saying all these things. Uh, the question originally came up because of clips of him, you know, back in the 1980s when he was mayor of Burlington. And, you know, he said all the same things, right? You know, he, he said, uh, back then, right? You know, that, uh, that, you know, it was authoritarian and he disagreed with the political system, but that he, uh, but that they had accomplished real things in terms of literacy and healthcare and life expectancy, uh, education, doctor patient ratio. Uh, racial desegregation, you know, these were all actual historical things that happened in Cuba since the revolution in, uh, in 1959, um, which, uh, I always think of, uh, there's a great scene in, uh, Godfather Part Two where, uh, they're, uh, I believe it's, uh, Hyman Ross birthday party and they're, they're cutting up a cake and talking about all their business interests in Cuba. Uh, and, you know, of course, half these people are gangsters and, you know, they, the line is, ah, it's so wonderful to be in a country that respects free enterprise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> these are mobsters saying that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, that's the, that's the gist of it, that if you, if you want to talk about what happened in, in Cuba, uh, people off, you know, there's often this bizarre thing in American discourse about Cuba where people sort of act as if, Cuba had been a democracy up until 1959, and then it became a dictatorship. Of course, what it was a there was the Batista dictatorship up until 1959, which was the one that you know Hyman Roth liked because it you know respected free enterprise, mm-hmm. uh, and then it was replaced by the Castro dictatorship, uh, which is a move sideways as far as uh, democracy was concerned, but as far as Poverty and education and healthcare and all these, you know, infant mortality, all these, uh, all these indicators go was a tremendous improvement. Uh, but, uh, so most of the critics just pretended that Bernie didn't, you know, didn't say the negative parts of what he said about Cuba. They pretend he only said the positive parts. Uh, but then the ones who pretend he, you know, who do acknowledge they said the negative parts, they say they sort of pretend as if he was saying, oh, but the negative parts are okay because of the positive parts, which of course he never said. Uh, all he said was that it's a complicated situation. It's not simple. It's not black and white. There are negatives and there are positives, uh, which one would think is just evidence that he's an adult uh, who can hold multiple thoughts in his head, which, you know, one would think would be just about the minimum qualification for being president of the United States. But the standard that a lot of these people what seem to want to use for discussions of Cuba is uh, what I refer to in the piece as the Narnia standard that uh, that you should you know that in uh, the you know CSS uh, you know books about Narnia you know before you know when the White Witch is ruling over Narnia they say it's you know it's uh, it's always winter and never Christmas you know mm-hmm. that that's just like how that's how we should talk about Cuba like it's just this like. Uh, is this unambiguously evil place that just totally lacks any redeeming features at all, which is really weird for a few reasons, one of which is that, um, well, first of all, this is a purity test, if anything is. It's a right-wing anti-communist purity test, but it's a right. purity test. Right. Uh, second, it's a purity test that's being applied by all of these centrist Democrats who love Barack Obama, and Obama did not pass the test himself. Right. Uh, Obama went to Cuba in 2016 when he had the big diplomatic opening. And if you watch clips from the speech that he gave in Cuba, uh, he said he praised their accomplishments in health care and education. Uh, 
Right. Which is exactly what Bernie Sanders got in trouble for. And he repeated that in his uh, press conference when he got back to the United States. Uh, so, so that, that, that's odd. And then what's even odder is that, uh, is that certainly forget Cuba, uh, when you look at all kinds of countries that are far more repressive than Cuba, none of these people, uh, pass the Narnia test, you know, pretending that they're unambiguously evil with no redeeming features. In fact, as Eric Levitz pointed out in a very good piece he had about this in New York Magazine, Every president, Democrat or Republican, always finds nice things to say about Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Hillary Clinton uh, described uh, Hosni, uh, Hosni Mubarak, the decades-long uh, dictator of Egypt, who presided over you know all kinds of torture and political repression. Uh, he, she said that Mr. and Mrs. Mubarak were close family friends. May he rest in peace. Yes, <laughs> we just lost him. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a real tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and 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 the list the list of this goes on and on. In fact, the candidate who's tried to make the biggest stink of this, uh, who's like tried hardest to use this to embarrass Bernie Sanders, is Michael Bloomberg, who just a few months ago. Uh, we did a debunk about this in the Michael Brooks show. Just a few months ago, Michael Bloomberg said that China's President Xi wasn't a dictator because uh, uh, they do opinion polls in China. Where he says, well, he's got constituencies to answer to. You know, they do polling, you know. So, mm-hmm. so that, that, you know, so he, like, not only did he find something positive to say about him, the positive thing that he found to say about him was a denial that uh, he's a dictator. Uh, the by the way, Mubarak's replacement in Egypt, um, uh, Morsi, I believe is his name. Morsi. Uh, Mor- okay, who was uh, Islamic so he, Brotherhood's Morsi, and then Al Sisi replaced him. We forced yeah. Morsi out, and then Al Sisi yeah. came in, and he's Mubarak, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, and right, and of course it wouldn't have, um, you know, as a Internal coup, but I mean, like, you don't do that without getting permission, you know, from, uh, from the United States. But, uh, but yeah, Al Sisi, the current, the current, uh, president of Egypt. Now, Donald Trump, give him credit for honesty, didn't, uh, didn't say like Bloomberg said of Xi that Al Sisi was not a dictator. Uh, Donald Trump was once famously overheard yelling out with reference to Al Sisi, where's my favorite dictator? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but none of this stops Republicans from from condemning, you know, from condemning Bernie. So, so when it, so it's interesting, right? When it comes to this one case, Cuba, um, you were not uh, we're supposed to pretend not to know that anything positive has ever been accomplished uh, under that system, uh, and the standard isn't applied anywhere else. And in fact, even on Cuba, it's not applied to other politicians. And I'll stop ranting about this. No, no, please. You're the, this is like wasabi. It's clearing my sinuses. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Last point about this. Um, you know, maybe like sometimes people like the different if, if people think, OK, well, somehow is OK for Obama to say this about Cuba, that they made these strides in health care and education, but it's not for Bernie. 
it seems to the the idea seems to be well you know Baba was just playing politics you know like he you know he was he was just saying that to you know to to butter them up while he was visiting uh but you know but Bernie really means that you know because because uh, you know because he's like a filthy no good communist you know and, and and so he probably he probably likes all the authoritarian stuff about Cuba uh then one uh you have to wonder why he spent his entire career fixing that word democratic before the word socialist, which, you know, he's been, you know, I mean, the guy has, has had some, you know, political evolution over the course of the year of his career. He's not as radical as he was, uh, you know, when he was, when he was in his twenties and, you know, thirties in the Liberty Union party, uh, in Vermont. But, uh, but what the purpose of that has always been to differentiate what he won, what he advocated from the, one party state, you know, uh, capital C communist model. Uh, and two, if you actually wanted to know, okay, does Bernie Sanders want to repress political dissidents like in Cuba, you might think that rather than trying to, uh, you know, somehow read it off of his remarks, where he condemned them for authoritarianism, but maybe he didn't really mean it. Maybe we can like bring in a body language expert to find out whether he was sincere, uh, like Joanne Reed. Uh, maybe instead of doing that, you could actually look at his government, his record in this country where he has a 100%, uh, rating for his votes in Congress and the Senate for the ACLU. Um, and, in fact, he's been very concerned about free speech, you know, so much so that he's he's criticized, uh, you know, college students for for you know disrupting you know speeches by Ann Coulter, you know, said you know we, we've that 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 makes me think that they they don't you know feel confident in their arguments against her. I mean, this is obviously a very like you know Bernie Sanders, whatever you want to say about him, he's obviously a very old fashioned you know First Amendment kind of absolutist. Uh, so this idea that like secretly in his heart of hearts, you know, he, he longs, to, uh, to, uh, you know, to, to throw all of his political enemies in prison. Um, is, well, he does, uh, there is a brick wall in Central Park waiting for Chris Matthews, but the rest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Um, that, uh, he, he did, Chris Matthews did come very close to a legend that he said that if, uh, uh, that if, if Castro and the Reds had won the Cold War, there'd be executions in Central Park and certain people would be cheering him on, uh, and maybe he would be one of the ones who was executed. Uh, so, but then again, that was actually relatively restrained. Uh, we found out that that was his, um, that was like the less excitable version of Chris Matthews we were saying, and, mm-hmm. and you know, come, who's reaching for that scenario? Uh, because uh, instead, after the Nevada win, uh, we went from um, we went from like this fantasy about uh, Red Dawn or whatever that was to uh, to Bernie's the Bernie Sanders campaign as uh, the Third Reich, you know, storming the Magna line to invade France. That's pretty much what. Chris Matthews said Saturday. Yeah. No, that is exactly what he said, that this is that uh that this is um that this this victory by by this uh you know by Bernie Sanders uh was equivalent know, that, to Winston Churchill receiving a phone call from the French general saying it's over and Winston saying, How is this possible? You have the world's greatest army, and the French general said, It's over. Paris has fallen. And to me, 
I do see the DNC establishment kind of like the French government, uh, French military, before Hitler invaded. Not to equate Bernie with uh, Hitler, but the French army is kind of like Perez and Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Donna Shalala, who you bring up in your column over Jacobin. They are hollow shells. They they are ripe for for the they're ready they're going to go down i i don't think it's a brokered convention there's no there no I, there I, yeah i was actually just before we um just before we got on skype i was um i was talking to to my younger brother on the phone and um and and i i've got to say maybe maybe i'm just like uh too influenced by thinking about the way that the republican uh primaries went with trump but um uh, but I, I like especially after nevada like i i just can't help but think that um none of this is going to come up he's going to get an outright majority uh in the in the first round because as it goes on there's the the force of momentum is going to be too much you know people are going to People, well, I mean, they see him as the front runner because he is the front runner, and and eventually, if you're somebody like Biden or you know Warren or any of these people, you know, if you don't start winning at a certain point, you know, like like this idea that like two thirds of the way through the primaries, people are going to start voting for you, that just doesn't seem like how primaries work. Let's go back to Godfather Two. Michael Corleone's in Cuba. He's about to give Hyman Roth the bag of money, invest in the casinos on his way to the hotel the cab stops and he sees castro revolutionaries taking on batista's military and michael in front of michael he sees one of castro's lieutenants jump on a hand grenade and that is seared into michael's memory and when he's wishy-washy about giving hyman roth the 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 bag of money he says what does that tell you about mercenaries versus people who believe in a cause that there are Castro has people who are willing to jump on a hand grenade. Batista just has mercenaries. You can't defeat mercenaries. The Hessian soldiers taught the Americans that the Hessians were British mercenaries. They, they, they are not going to jump on a hand grenade. The people who support this guy, Timothy O'Brien, who's a, 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 a Bloomberg surrogate, he's doing it for the money. Everybody's doing it for the money. Yeah. They're mercenaries. They go down. Yeah, no, they I'm, run away. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I think that they, certainly the level of dedication that you're, that you're seeing from... Um, Tell me you know, about... So you were knocking on doors, speaking of dedication, speaking of people who are willing to jump on a hand grenade. Ben Burgess, Professor Ben Burgess, columnist for Jacobin, or as Michael Brooks calls him, the debunkinator. I love that. You were knocking on doors in Nevada. with, And you were saying, come out with your hands up. You're, we're taking you to a Bernie <laughs> camp for some re-education. Is that how it goes? What What, what is the knocking on doors involved? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's. Uh, I'm sure you've seen... They're all the memes with the uh, that screenshot of the Bernie fundraising video where he says, I'm once again asking for your financial support. And I think somebody did one where he's holding a gun and it says, <laughs> I'm no longer asking. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
yeah, so what I had doing in in, uh, in Nevada, so I, I flew into um, I flew into Las Vegas late Thursday night, and you know I left again on uh, Saturday morning, so I was only there for a day. And uh, what they ended up having me doing was I was part of a team of people who were walking around outside the uh, casinos uh, talking to cab drivers um, on the Las Vegas Strip and uh, encouraging them to to show up the next day to caucus for Bernie. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and over the course of the day, you know, me and my uh, caucusing partner, a guy who put me up in Vegas, uh we're, you know, we, we, we got a few people, you know, commitments, you know, to do that. It's obviously very slow work because, um, very frustrating work because, uh, most, um, you know, so, so many of the, so many of these people, you know, these cab drivers in Vegas either, well, can't vote because they're not citizens or they just can't, uh, take the time off work because it's a, because it's like a 90 minute, two hour commitment, you know, right. to do the caucus. Right. Or they just can't afford the lost income uh, from from missing that much. Uh, but I was very encouraged over the course of the day because one thing I did notice, as as slow going as it was, is that none of these cabbies in Vegas were um, were like Biden supporters or Klobuchar or any of these other people, right? Like pretty much everybody who expressed a political opinion, with a couple of exceptions, there were a couple of people who were like. Supporting Tom Steyer because he like I guess he was blanketing the state with money, but uh, with a, with those exceptions, everybody else I talked to all day in Vegas who expressed a political opinion was either a Republican or a Bernie supporter. Yeah, uh, and I think that. And what think, questions were you asked? Like, what was what were some of the reservations that these miscreants had about Bernie that necessitated your putting a dunce cap? On them and making them march down the strip while Bernie supporters tossed rocks at them. As yeah, we well, engage in a cultural revolution. <laughs> well, this close, of course, to um, to the to the caucus the day before. You know, they don't really want you wasting a lot of time. Um, you know, arguing with people who um, you know who aren't already supporters. They want you to focus on persuading supporters to actually take the time out and show up. Mm-hmm. But uh, the one, um, like I said, the focus was on talking to the cab drivers, but uh, but my canvassing partner, uh, Roger, did also, who's a Las Vegas native, he was the guy who was putting me up, and he uh, and his he married to um, – a, uh, a member of the, uh, the culinary union, uh, in Vegas. And so he also sort of took the opportunity to, to reach out to a couple of, um, bellhops and other people who are, who are culinary members. Uh, and, and of course there, um, there's the, you know, the big reservation is that the union leadership had been, uh, encouraging people not to vote for him. They didn't end up endorsing anybody, but they, but they put out this statement and that, um, people shouldn't uh, shouldn't vote for Bernie because uh, he would take away the union uh, health fund and the, the like clinic that goes with that. Yeah. Uh, and and there are probably a lot of reasons that that happened. Um, some legitimate misinformation, some overlap between the union leadership and the um, you know Democratic Party infrastructure. Uh, they you know, but. Um, but but they the really inspiring thing about this is that uh, at the well not the end of the day but the next day at the caucus uh, the overwhelming majority of culinary 
uh, workers uh, voted for Bernie anyway uh, right. at the uh, at the caucuses, uh, and a lot of people even said, you know, even though they do have. Um, you know this this good health fund, and you know particularly the clinic that it funds is really great. You know it's 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 uh, you know they they get this you know world class kind of service. But a lot of people said, yeah, that's great. But like you know, what about like you know my uh, you know my brother, my cousin, you know my 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 grandma, you know like they don't get the you know they yeah, don't. Yeah, I have to share my insulin with them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and I think that's a very encouraging sign going forward. And it's also very encouraging because right up until the Nevada caucus, uh, all of the talking heads on TV were saying that Bernie's ceiling was like 30% or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so seeing him have this, this double digit victory in Nevada, uh, seeing him absolutely crush the uh, Hispanic vote in Nevada, um, in fact, uh, so I haven't looked at all these numbers, but what my brother was just telling me was that the only group, the only group that, uh, that Bernie lost outright, uh, were, uh, in Nevada were white conservatives. So, uh, people, so to be clear, like, uh, people who describe themselves as liberal, um, you know, most of them voted for Bernie. People who describe themselves as moderate, a plurality of them voted for Bernie. People who describe themselves even as conservative Democrats, a, a plurality voted for Bernie. Uh, and, uh, you know, white people, black people, uh, Hispanic people all, all got majorities of voted for Bernie. But if you look at the overlap between white people and people who describe themselves as conservative Democrats, he did lose that group. Okay. We're talking with Professor Ben Burgess. He's a columnist for Jacobin. His latest piece is Bernie Sanders was right about Cuba. His latest book is Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. And you can see him every week on the Michael Brooks Show as the debunkinator, debunking. And sign up for his uh, Patreon account. Get about two of his essays delivered to your inbox. I am thrilled and honored that you do this show and you've taught me so much you're not in a bubble. I am. I read and I kind of talk to people like me as a writer, as a professor, as a public intellectual. What is the benefit to going and knocking on doors in Las Vegas? What did you learn stepping out of your academic bubble and being in the trenches? What what did you come home with? I know you didn't come home with any money because you were in Las Vegas. Maybe a couple of venereals. No, uh, sorry. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. I can't. What, 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 what did you learn intellectually? What, what, what did you get from well, this? Well, I mean, it, it was good. Um, I mean, look, I'll say, I'll say this much, right? Like I, I try, you know, uh, I try not to live in a bubble. If nothing else, I spend, I spend an unhealthy amount of my time. Uh, reading, you know, centrist and conservative and libertarian, um, you know, opinion writing so I could respond to it. Uh, and, but I will say that one thing it was a good reminder of, uh, was, was just how many people are suffering. Are, are suffering, absolutely. And just how many people aren't really engaged with, this stuff and, and don't really see yet politics as a way that they can alleviate that suffering. So, um, so, you know, in, um, 
so like the you know they're just just people who who didn't you know who didn't even know that there was a there was a caucus coming up right or or who uh, uh you know who, who just really aren't that aren't that plugged into it you know really didn't know what the process was um you know like that's it's a good you know it's, it's a good reminder you know of that although um you know although the the news is good right because you know vote like the participation in the caucus this year was was way up you know from mm-hmm. uh, from two, from you know 2000 is he bringing out i mean he talks about bringing the 100 million people who can vote but don't into the booth is he is yeah i don't i don't is the turnout I mean, look, big Sure. Yeah, turnout in Nevada was 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 big, uh, and uh, I'm not sure about New Hampshire. One thing I do know about Iowa is that um, people really fixated on um, on the fact that the overall turnout in Iowa wasn't necessarily you know bigger you know than than in the past. It was on par with what's happened in the past, but that seems to be uh, a matter of of turn out by by older voters who aren't necessarily sympathetic uh being down uh the youth turnout in Iowa was actually way up uh this year as as opposed to last time so there, there is some you know there is some some evidence there of this paid off but look i think that if i don't necessarily think it's the case that uh Bernie Sanders is going to you know, attract some vast army of of new voters over the course of the primaries. I don't know how realistic that is. Uh, I think that it is going to be the case that you know there are going to be um, you know independent, you know, like people who are relatively politically engaged but wouldn't necessarily normally vote in a Democratic primary uh, who will vote for them. That that already happened in 2016. Right, you know that there was quite a bit of that. Okay, uh, so you but, are the author. But, 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 of... Oh, sorry. Yeah, just 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 to just to just to wrap it up, right? I don't necessarily think that there's going to be a huge effect like this in the primary. I think that I don't even necessarily think that there's going to be a huge extra turnout in the general. Although I think it's more likely to happen there than it is in the primary. Uh, I think that this is a process. I think that I think that it takes some time. I think that. Because so many people are disengaged and cynical and, you know, they've been every time any politician has ever told them anything good, they've been lying. Uh, then, then I think that it, um, it takes some time. I think you need to put some points on the board before people start to take it seriously. But what I do think is that over the course of time, uh, Bernie and the kind of politics that Bernie represents could really increase the number of people who participate in the process. Before you go, and once again, thank you for doing this. We're talking with Ben Burgess, Professor Ben Burgess. He's the author of Give Them an Argument Logic for the Left. This is a tired discussion, but I think it will be over after Super Tuesday, assuming Bernie is the presumptive nominee. I don't think the issue of Bernie bros is germane anymore. But I am a Bernie bro. And this is what I'm experiencing, and you wrote a book about logical fallacies and arguing and how people are afraid of an argument. They don't know how to argue. And, boy, you watch the debates and you watch the complaints about Bernie bros, and your book is more relevant than ever. The left, the liberals, the Democrats, 
walk away from arguments. They don't know how to argue. My experience as a Bernie bro is, and I'm, this doesn't say anything about me. It's more about Bernie. It's all about Bernie. I will not lose an argument about Bernie. You cannot lose a debate or a discussion or an argument about Bernie because the other side, their premises are built on lies. And and certainly talking to you, I've learned to, to poke through all their false premises. And the reaction is, even if you're doing it politely, people uh. go, oh, you and your purity tests, it's your way or the highway, and everybody else is yeah, everybody else is wrong. I'm, I'm not yelling at you, but you're wrong. What do you believe in? Do you believe in Medicare for all? I believe in consensus and, and moderation. Th that doesn't exist. That's a fiction, moderation, consensus. It doesn't exist. It's just a warm blanket that protects you from the brutal reality that you got to pick a side. Right? Yeah. I mean, look, I think um, in some ways the problem here is that the particular way that the Democratic Party has been lying to people for the last several decades is really coming back to bite them in the ass here because um, they have even even through all the decades when um, – you know, when, uh, when Democrats were overseeing, you know, the Clinton era, you know, everything that happened there from free trade to welfare reform, uh, you know, Obama, uh, you know, where, where the, um, you know, he continued the, you know, the bailouts of, mm -hmm. uh, of, of corporations and Wall Street without, you know, without providing, you know, meaningful assistance to, you know, to homeowners and the gap between rich and poor, you know, was continually expanding under Obama. Uh, but even through all of this, um, the Democratic Party has been constantly telling people, hey, we, um, we're on your side, right? You know, we, we, you know, we share your, you know, we share your goals, right? I mean, like this is, you know, this is what your, uh, I'm a lefty from way back routine is all about, right? You mm -hmm. know, that they, uh, that the Democratic Party has, has managed to, has only succeeded holding on to its voting base by convincing, convincing them that, um, if only it were politically possible and realistic, they would be doing everything that the base wanted them to do. Right. Right. You know, that they, that like, if they had to sometimes, say or do very Republican-sounding things, it was just because the deck was so stacked against them and they had no choice. And, you know, the thing is... Uh, it's you know, a, it's, it's that's, so infuriating. Yeah, it is. It is, absolutely. And, you know, we might we might think that it's infuriating bullshit, but, like, you know, tens of millions of people really bought that. Uh, and so what that, what that means, though... It's it's kind of nice though now, right? There was an article in uh, Jacobin by uh, Seth Ackerman called "The Cosmic Irony of the Rise of Bernie Sanders," and uh, what he's talking about is exactly what we were just talking about. And he says this is why, in a weird way, this is actually playing into Bernie's hands now, because even though people like you and me on one side, and people who are like hardcore Bernie hating centrists on the other side all believe that there's this profound ideological gap between Bernie and everybody else. 
all ordinary rank-and-file Democrats who believed all the nonsense they're being fed over the decades don't see a big ideological gap, right? right. They, they assume that, like, maybe Bernie's a little bit more um, plain-spoken, mm-hmm. right? Maybe he's a little bit more ambitious, but, like, they basically assume that what he wants and what Joe Biden wants, you know, aren't that far apart. Uh, and this is actually good for him because that means this is why you can't assume that, like, everybody who's voting for any of the other candidates, you know, are are just, uh, you know, diehard anti-Bernie people well, who and, continue. And, and, in Nevada, the second and, round, Bernie got more of the Biden yeah. votes than anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And so and so that's the thing. Uh because people assume that, you know, Bernie is just being a, is just a more aggressive, more plain spoken version of the other Democrats, that means that as the election goes on and he keeps on winning, uh people are more and more going to just you know more and more gonna gravitate to and say, Okay, I guess this is our guy, mm-hmm. right? And um uh, and maybe I, I had a slight preference for this or that other Democrat, but whatever, we're all Democrats, right? You know, we all, we right. all want what's best for, you know, working people. Uh, and so, and so I, th- I think that this idea that, um, this idea that some centrists have that like as the centrist candidates start dropping out, eventually all of the current, you know, centrist vote is going to coalesce behind one of them. Is is just based on a, a delusion that that's that's just not the way it's going to play out, right? The more the more centrist candidates drop out at this point, the better that's going to be for Bernie because uh, because the people will do what they always do over the course of uh, of primaries, which is to rally around the front runner. I saw this guy Cooper tweets. He is a Democratic operative, and he tweeted today: winning ticket Biden and Kamala Harris. And everybody in his echo chamber. Now that, you know, that I want to see. Two people who haven't won a single primary or caucus. The, the, the charge leveled against me as a Bernie bro. You know, I'm insufferable and I will not, I, I, I will not tolerate, uh, false arguments or lies. I push back. Um, does the tone, the rhetoric, the anger that comes from people like me, you're, you're measured. People say, you're not helping Bernie. And I say, you know, you weren't going to vote for Bernie anyway, but you won't admit that you own stock in Aetna. So you rather talk about my tone <laughs> than the fact that you don't care that people are dying from lack of health insurance but you so you'll just say it's my tone of voice isn't that what it's really about they have to find an excuse and it can't be the, yeah, the issues yeah, look i think that i think there is an awful lot of that you know that there's that you know it's one thing to say that there are certain points in which um in which maybe, you know, we should, uh, you know, we could all stand to like take a step back and say, okay, um, you know, is my primary goal here to, uh, to amuse my leftist friends, you know, uh, by, by how much I'm savaging this person or is my primary goal to, you know, to win votes. But at the same time, um, so like, you know, I mean, I don't, uh, you know, I don't recommend, you know, just like yelling at people, you know, online. But at the same time, 
uh, most of these complaints are incredibly disingenuous. Uh, there's, there's no, um, it's a tactic, right? And, and it's, and the people who make it are really conflating to a, a few different, very different things that, uh, on the one hand, look, sometimes there are people who absolutely say toxic, horrible things on Twitter about everything, right? Mm-hmm. I think that, I don't think you could like, if you're somebody who has a lot of people who follow you on Twitter, I don't think you could express a strong opinion about fucking Star Trek, never mind this presidential election, without like getting like people like responding to you in really over the top, negative, ridiculous ways. Uh, that's, that's just the, you know, that, that's the nature of, of the medium. It, it lets, you know, it lets a lot of cowardly people, you know, uh, let out a lot of aggression. Uh, but look, uh, there's no evidence. Nobody's ever provided any evidence that you're going to get more, that you have more of the toxic, horrible stuff from Bernie people than from anybody else. There's plenty of it that's directed at Bernie people. And really, oftentimes, what people lump together with the genuinely horrible stuff is just what you're talking about, which is just which is just being passionate, right? You know, which is like you know, it's, it's not you know, you're not. Uh, like, and so what if we? So what if we? are loud and we call you stupid. What does that have to do with Medicare for all, climate catastrophe, income inequality? What, your feelings got hurt? So 50,000 Americans should die every year because they're underinsured? That's that's how narcissistic you are, that I hurt your feelings? So New York City should be underwater in 20 years? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And again, that that, like... You know, as as long as it's not being, you know, expressed in in any way that's that's like crosses the line to be like genuinely alienating to winnable people. Uh, I mean, I, I think that that's the exact passion. You know, you're talking about it earlier when you're making the the comparison. Um, you know, between uh, you know Batista's mercenaries and and the uh, and uh, versus the Castro guerrillas and uh, and the Democratic primary that people that um, nobody I mean you know people have I mean I you know I mean I I mean I flew you know several hours round trip over the course of a few days on my own dime to you know campaign for Bernie and compared to a lot of people I know I'm a slacker right I've I've barely done anything you know now you wore to did you have trouble getting on the plane? Because I know you're worried about coronavirus. You wore the anonymous mask, the Guy Fox mask. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> what happened to anonymous? Have they gone anonymous? But didn't they used to be a thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They seem to have receded. I don't, I don't, I don't know if they still exist. I or think not, the guy at the CIA I, retired. I, the guy I who was anonymous of... at the CIA. I think. Okay. I think yeah. they gave him a gold watch and anonymous shut down. Before you go, first of all, I, 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 I haven't heard anything from them in a while, but I was just going to say, right? Like I did that. I know a lot of people who've done a lot more than me in terms of things like that. And I don't think anybody would cross the street for Mike Bloomberg without getting paid for it <laughs> or being afraid that if you don't, you'll get a jaywalking ticket. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm going to end on this. And, and by the way, thank you. So, you know, I'm of a certain age and I recognize that I'm part of the problem or I, yeah, I'm part of the problem because when I was married and raising children, I 
was infantilized by the Obamas and the Clintons and believed their horseshit. I was told the bedtime story that you've reiterated. I was infantilized. And over time, as my children moved as far to the left as you can possibly go, and I met you and Michael Brooks and Sam Cedar, who's not as much a lefty as you and 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 uh, Michael, but as I've had you on the show and Harvey J.K. and several others, I am moving further and further to the left. And I, over time, Howie Klein, you know, in the past five years, I have woken up to the fact that I was lied to. I was infantilized, and I've discovered that my mother and father are evil. They're disgusting. You know, it's like capturing the freedmen's. I've discovered that my dad is is down in the basement, and he's not teaching computer skills. And there are two reactions. I can either deal with that truth, that I was lied to by mommy and daddy, and that they're evil. I can deal with it by blocking it out. And when you tell me mommy and daddy are evil, I'll say, you're just a Bernie bro. It's your way or the highway. My mommy and daddy are good. And and you're saying, that just I don't want to hear it, and you're evil. Or you can do what I do, and that is, okay, I, uh, mommy and daddy molested me and everybody else, and, uh, I'm gonna have to deal with this. And yes, I'm gonna channel my anger to making sure they can never harm me again or my children. I don't want Obama or the Clintons or the Gores or the Bidens anywhere n- near me or my children or my grandchildren. That's what an adult does after they've been traumatized. The Bernie bro phenomenon comes from people who just can't accept that their parents molested them. Okay. Maybe not. Maybe that isn't. (laughs) All I I can say um, is that... is is that I'm incredibly offended by that metaphor, especially on behalf of Bill Clinton, uh, <laughs> who who does not deserve to be be lumped in with uh, with child molesters. It's offensive to Clinton. It's offensive to his dear family friends like Prince Andrew, uh, and it's particularly offensive <laughs> at this time yeah. of mourning because if if you forget. Uh, they, they are, the, the Clintons are still in mourning for their good family friend, Jeffrey Epstein. Yes. Yes. Ben Burgess, thank you for all you do. Thank you. You are the real deal. <laughs> you, you were knocking on doors and well, you're doing the Lord's work. How's he going to do in South Carolina quickly before we go? I mean, look, uh, Biden might win. But uh, but even if that happens, I'm I'm very optimistic that um, that that Bernie, that the gap uh, is is not going to be that you know there's going to be less of a gap if by if Biden wins he's not going to beat Bernie by anything like as much as Bernie beat uh, Biden by Nevada and um, and you know and, and who knows uh, he's, he's surprised people before. I'm I'm very you know I'm very I'm very optimistic. It would be beautiful. Uh, if he actually won, if Bernie Sanders actually won South Carolina, uh, I don't think I, I think it's too early to write off the possibility. But uh, but, you know, if he uh, if he doesn't, well, you know, nobody nobody in the history of uh, meaningfully contested primaries. Right. Meaningfully contested nominations, by which I mean 
nomination nominations where uh, you had more than one candidate winning states, right? Like yeah. sometimes, like 2000, you know, there's there's like Al Gore just swept everything. He got all 50 states, you know. But um, but in the entire history of American elections, when we look at the when we look at the ones where there are more than one candidate winning states, assuming this is one of them, um, Bernie Sanders has already done something unprecedented. He's the first one uh, in a meaningfully contested primary to win uh, three states mm-hmm. in a row, the first three states all in a row. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that is an amazing accomplishment. Uh, if he does win South Carolina, then I think it might be a much faster route to the nomination. If it's if he loses it, it's much slower. It's a not much slower necessarily, but a slower route. But either way. I I really believe that the only way that he doesn't get the nomination is if they find a way to steal it from him. Yeah, which I don't think they can. And he's battle tested. He's ready for Trump. That's the important thing. Here's my what I have to say about South Carolina. I think Biden might win it. I think Bernie could win it. I think Steyer doesn't have a chance. Warren may pull a Hail Mary. It doesn't matter who wins the final tally will reveal that the future face of the Democratic Party is Pete Buttigieg, and only he <laughs> can beat Trump in the general. And I look forward to to Pete's inspiring victory speech coming in fifth. You know what the thing that pisses me <laughs> off? The guy comes in fifth and it's a victory, and that's pretty much how he sees the future of the country. Like, hey, look, you know... Uh, Fifth place, you should be happy. Like, I'm happy. I came in fifth place. You should be happy, America. I didn't win. You don't have to win. Pete Pete Buttigieg is single-handedly turning me into one of those right-wing scolds who's always talking about participation trophies. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's like... My God, you know, like, have some respect for yourself. If you want to give this speech, actually win something first. Uh, last thought, I promise you, this is it. My theory about Mayor Pete is he is what, ha- what happens when you have to stay in the closet. This is why homophobia is so dangerous and, and it makes people sick and then makes the whole culture sick. He spent, you know, the better part of 25 years lying to himself and to other people. And he learned how to talk in a way that doesn't reveal anything, but sounds like it is revealing. He's learned how to deceive and, and, and obfuscate and create word salad that sounds kind of like he's being authentic with you, but he's not. That's what the closet, I believe, trained Mayor Pete to do. And this is another reason same-sex marriage is important and why we have to put an end to homophobia because it creates really sick people like Mayor Pete. You have a pained look on your face and I can't even see you. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, uh, Ben Burgess. Dr. Ben Burgess is author of Give Them an Argument Logic for the Left. He is a columnist for Jacobin. You can see him every week doing the debunk on the Michael Brooks show, and he is a philosophy professor at Perimeter College, Georgia State University. Georgia State University? Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. 
and follow him on Twitter at Ben Burgess. Stay on the line for one quick second, sir. Thank you. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. This is a pledge episode. I'm David Feldman, davidfeldmanshow.com, and today I ask you for money. I'm going to ask you to go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let us now go to Tucson, Arizona, where Dr. Jennifer Verdelin is standing by. She is an animal behaviorist who teaches animal conservation at Arizona University, the University of Arizona. She's the author of two books, Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships, and Raised by Animals, the surprising new science of animal family Dynamics with Try at Home Lessons from the Wild. Subscribe to her Wild Connection TV channel over at YouTube. I'm looking, I think, at a gigantic turtle, I'll have to ask her, <laughs> and, and Sylvester Stallone on your YouTube channel. Follow her over Twitter, Real Dr. Jen. Subscribe to her newsletter. Go to jenniferverdelin.com. I want to talk to you about, well, the original gangsters of the Sonora Desert and the coronavirus, and I think that should cover most of today's segment, don't you? I do, but we 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 can try to squeeze in some owls in there too. In fact, maybe I'll I'll make them one of the original gangsters. So I'm working on a video uh, called "The Original Gangsters of the Sonoran Desert" or "The OGs mm-hmm. of the Sonoran Desert" because I think lots of People believe that the the fierce ones are going to be the jaguar and the mountain lion and the rattlesnake and and when you take a, a real close look at at uh, at who's carving out a living here in the Sonoran Desert, it's some of our tiniest uh, critters that are the most badass. You know, I'm beginning to realize that, that not just because of Michael Bloomberg. I, I, I do think. <laughs> I, I do think there's a world a, in the microscopic world. It's UFC time. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, even a, a parasitic worm like creates more soldiers when it's under threat. Are we going to keep doing Michael Bloomberg references when you say parasitic <laughs> worm? Can we please move past? It was inadvertent. I'll move okay. on. I'll All move right. on. Thank you. Thank you. To, to some uh, some really cool uh little one so probably I'll, I'll lead up right we've yeah. got we've got our scorpions and our tarantulas 
Uh, and, you know, people think of them as pretty frightening mm-hmm. and, and even potentially dangerous. I, I learned quickly after moving to Tucson that you never walk around your house without shoes on <laughs> because, you know, there are scorpions in your house. And, um, and, and what kind of damage can a scorpion do? Well, so there's a few, there's one in particular, like the really small ones. So tiny things. Uh, usually are more venomous. And again, I don't mean to make a joke. Uh, <laughs> <Go> <laughs> so, um, tiny scorpions are more dangerous than the larger ones. And, and so it hurts a lot if you got stung by a scorpion, uh, and you w- will have a response. And some people have an anaphylactic response, much like with bee stings. Okay. So that is, and of course, the more often you get stung, the more likely that is to happen. Right. Now, what about Senor Buttons, your cat? Yes. Well, he's the one who clued me into the fact that I had a scorpion in my house. Uh, (laughs) I was barefoot, and um, Senor Buttons was leading me into the living room, and then he put his nose, I mean, paper-thin distance away from something, and I looked, and I realized it was a scorpion who then raised up its tail uh, because uh, I guess it's Senor Buttons was there, and he was looked at me like, I don't know, I think this is a problem. Uh, do you want to handle it? And so I, cats and dogs are immune to the venom. Oh. Yeah, but it hurts, right? So it's not without pain for them to get stung, right. but we don't have to worry about the same problem of, of response to venom that we share with them in response to rattlesnakes or Gila monster, which are two other sort of, you know, uh, pretty, pretty uh, tough characters. So does a, cat, does, does a cat know innately <clears throat> that a scorpion can't kill it? So it's okay to fight it. Do they know what they're immune to and what they're not? No, no. So, uh, that, so a lot of dogs here in, in Tucson get go, you know, how successful it is, I don't know, but they go through rattlesnake awareness training. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they try to do some training, uh, to, cause dogs are always running around, sticking their nose in bushes, right? Cats don't do this. Uh, right. <laughs> so, um, they, they, they're running around, uh, even on a leash and you're on a trail and, and they are sniffing around and, uh, many get, get, you know, nailed by a rattlesnake because they're not aware of what the sound means. So they do some training. There are different um, trainers here in in the city that work on this specifically. Um, but you know, it's it's a problem even for horses. I have a friend of mine whose horse was they were on a trail ride far from any help and uh, got got um, bit by a rattlesnake. And fortunately, he's still alive. Uh, he has some long-lasting issues, but it was a mad rush to get him back to the truck without running him, you know, because the faster you move, the more it circulates, et cetera. Right. So, right. so these, uh, are the, a, these are the hmm? original gangsters of the Sonora Desert? Is that what it's called? Sonoran, Sonoran. Desert. Sonoran yes. Desert. Well, and. Well, there's there's one that I think people might not realize that that beats all of these, I think, and this is the grasshopper mouse, um, and and it's a tiny mouse that decapitates scorpions like it's pulling grapes off of a 
cluster <laughs> and howls at the moon. Mm. Yes. So they are they are nasty. Immune to the venom and they are tiny and fearless. Mm-hmm. And I I mean the fact that a mouse howls at the moon is is all you need to say to call that the winner. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't have you last week. You were no. pummeling, crushing bones. Why? Yes. Why were you crushing <laughs> bones and whose bones were you crushing? <laughs> well, to to alleviate any concerns, there were no human bones involved. Mm-hmm. Uh so I'm doing a study on great horned owls here in uh, the Sonoran Desert, and uh, that involves collecting a lot of pellets and doing a lot of behaviors. And, you know, great horned owls could be considered a, a, a bit of a tough animal, too, because they always look at you like they want to rip your face off. And mm-hmm. I think it's because they're angry that they have to vomit up bones, basically. I wow. think they think they got a raw deal you know they eat something and they can't digest the bones and the fur so then like 36 hours later they cough up a pretty large and seemingly uncomfortable (laughs) package so i go around and collect that package and traditionally people have sat at a desk with a microscope and and a mask and gloves and picked apart the pellets and pulled out bones right and I don't have time for this. Plus, you miss a lot of tiny bones that you may not identify properly. So one thing we're doing is we are taking the whole pellet and crushing it, pulverizing it, because we want to extract DNA. And the bones have DNA, but it's on the inside in the bone marrow. So you can't just treat the bone. You've got to crush it. And this is a really hard problem to solve, so all else say is that it involved freezing liquid nitrogen and vigorous rapid like 4,000 RPMs per second uh, a, a machine that does that to turn bones from whatever the owl ate into powder and then we got to do all this uh, steps that we do to try to get DNA out of that mm-hmm. and we didn't quite fail <laughs> We just we only got a small amount of DNA, which may not be enough. So we have to go back to the drawing board, and this is the scientific process, right? We go, okay, well we got some, but we didn't get enough. So what do we need to do? Do we need to add more bones? Do we need to, you know, sometimes calcium gets in the way of the bones, so you know the DNA. So we got to get rid of the calcium and wash everything, and so it's a very fun process. Um, but this way. We can then take something called universal primers, which will tag every vertebrate and every insect hmm. that is contained in this pellet and tell me what they ate. Wow. wow. I know. Super cool. Uh, I, 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 I'm not going to say it sounds like a real hoot because that was. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. I know my. Le- See, I have to. I have to get. It's like a popped corn kernels stuck in a molar and I just have to <laughs> remove the hoot thing and now it's gone and now I can go back to watching the movie. Okay. Owls. Owls have yeah. f- they have like forward facing eyeballs and ears. Like they look like humans. So 
they're, I think they're the only birds that look like humans. So we attribute to them intelligence because we're so <clears throat> egoistical. Are owls really as smart as we, we like to think? Or is it just because they kind of look like us? I mean, they are gorgeous. I mean, Jesus, you look at, yes. I mean, they're the most beautiful, I think. I mean, they're just gorgeous. But are they as Absolutely. smart as we think well, they are? So, now, if you were to base smartness on trainability, then that would be a firm no. Okay. But smartness like is not based on, and one could argue that the smarter you are, the least willing you are to be trained, which would explain the high intelligence of cats. That's what I was um, saying when I finally had the rubber sheets removed from my bed when I was 13. <laughs> so. Well, so, so owls, owls are exceptional at being owls, right? So their vision, uh, they don't, they don't smell real well. So like the great horned owls don't, don't have a, a wonderful sense of smell. So they're not so discriminating about what they'll eat. They mm. eat a lot of different things. Um, their vision is phenomenal, and they basically, um, it's like three-dimensional, and and the number of, of colors they can see, I think for most birds, I'm not sure for raptors, is in the um, ultraviolet range as well, which we can't see. And so their hearing is phenomenal. Their, their sight is phenomenal. Their eyes are forward-facing because they use by binocular vision, but then to solve the problem of not having good peripheral vision, you know, they can turn their head pretty mm -hmm. much uh, all the way around. <laughs> and they're quiet when they fly, um, so so they're really stealth predators. And here, great horned owls, they don't make their own nests, so, so they're kind of like an OG because they just steal other smaller birds' nests. Wow. Okay. So, a cooper's hawk, for example, here might put in a lot of effort to build a nest, and and then the great horned owl comes in and, and kicks them out and basically, you know, takes over their nest, and much to the displeasure of cooper's hawks, I should say, and even ravens. So so they will they they basically go around and steal housing uh, from from others. I, I read somewhere that. Uh, female owls are turned on by short males, but they're, that they, pref oh. they prefer the Michael Bloomberg's of the world. <laughs> they do. So this is true, not just for owls, but all raptors in general. Um, really? There are probably a few exceptions, but here's why. So females prefer smaller males in, in raptors because when you have, they have a, a breeding season where they're monogamous, and they rely heavily on their partner. The females rely heavily on the partner to bring them food while they're incubating the egg. So what does this have to do with being small? Well, smaller males fly faster and can catch more food in general. That's the belief, that smaller males are, are faster flyers, and this makes them better hunters. Better providers. Correct. That's really interesting. I, I, yeah. I, you know, I don't like to be mean about things that people can't control and everybody's sure. got their own physical thing that they're not thrilled about. But Michael Bloomberg mm. is not tall, but he presents as a great provider. Right. right. 
Well, so in humans, females actually do prefer taller males, but are things uh, are 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 sort of uh, cues for what we consider now to be good provider have been supplanted uh, from physical prowess to either intelligence and or resources, right? So the quickest way for a smaller male to present as a better provider is to get more money. That doesn't mean a female will be faithful to a smaller male. Oh, what a nightmare women are. But, um, I mean, <laughs> did I say I, that out loud? No, I did. I, you did I thought, but, you no, know, I didn't. But, I thought But that. men are trying to secure as many women as possible in many cases, so that doesn't make them a dream either. Women could look at somebody like Michael Bloomberg and say, in terms of good sperm... Mm. Well, the sperm isn't good, but he can take care of the the children. So, <clears throat> right. what, what do she women see? What, what do women see when they the see children. Michael Bloomberg? <laughs> well, wait, what? What do, what does a woman see when she meets Michael Bloomberg? Well, I think I, I have no idea, right? But if I were to speculate, I would say that some women, not all, because I'm going to pull myself out of this equation. <laughs> um, some women might see power, influence, resources, security, uh, and, and those things may be desirable to acquire. That only works if you're the wife. It mm-hmm. doesn't work if you're second, third female. <laughs> and so, and then the best way to secure, if you have noticed, women who view males in that way may secure that resource by getting pregnant. I see. So, he because might now be, Michael Bloomberg might have a lot of money. Yeah, Michael Bloomberg might have a lot of money, but women still look down on him. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I just I, I shouldn't do that. It's not nice, mm. but he doesn't belong in the Democratic Party. Uh, yeah. So uh, love humans fall in love. As as somebody like Michael Bloomberg, you would assume if he's worth close to fifty billion, more than fifty billion, mm-hmm. has he ever been loved? Do you think it's safe to say the fact that he needs fifty billion, he doesn't know what the the, the, the solace of love means, right? That if he keeps having to accumulate that kind of wealth, he, well, I don't know because you know that that implies that somehow. Uh, you know, a love can, you know, pay your rent and, you know, <laughs> buy you food and people could easily argue that that's not in fact the case. But and, at you know, some point, so- at some point, you like to believe that a human being <clears throat> is loved enough that he, he, he can say, mm-hmm. you know what, I, I got enough. I don't need to be part of this rat race anymore. What I'm saying right. is, what I'm saying is, like somebody like Michael Bloomberg is a very sick man, and I mean that. Well, but here's the thing: I'm I'm just going to say that I think the accumulation of wealth is less to do about women and more to do about people competing with each other and so, power so, over other people. That's right. Yeah. So, so meaning, you know, why not him have fifty billion? Because somebody else is going to have sixty billion and a hundred billion, and then they all sit around, you know, comparing how many billions they have. And it's if we just say, for example, that we're talking about men, they're going to compete on the level of I have more than you do as a metaphor for, you know, 
something. For for something that's something else that is lacking. Perhaps. Yeah. So so again, I think it's revealed in our politics this year. And I mean that. I think this is a litmus test on human psychology and the mm. pathology of our system. When you see somebody like Michael Bloomberg standing on the same stage as Bernie, you realize that the system is sick and that Michael mm -hmm. Bloomberg is a very sick man. Right. He's delusional that, that he thinks he can buy the party and he's immoral and... Uh, but I would argue that that he just reflects, a, 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 I mean, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a politically savvy person right. in any way. I'm, you know, I'm out, you know, using liquid nitrogen on bones. Right. Uh, but, but my sense is that he merely reflects a system of, of where corporations have already bought our political landscape and have for a really long time. So, so I think that, we see that reflected in things that get passed or don't get passed, people who get elected or don't get elected. That That's not a, a new phenomenon, right? And for me, I'm finding it really disturbing as a, just a general citizen who wants to vote and wants to have some things change. The, the, the real push of, like, it doesn't matter what people want, Bernie won't get elected, therefore we shouldn't let Bernie win the nomination. Mm -hmm. This is subverting uh, people's will. Yeah. And 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 the idea that if there is whatever that contested electorate is, like if somebody doesn't take the the full amount, that some other group of people who've been potentially bought and paid for are going to make the decision is really disturbing to me just as a you know, the older I've gotten and the more rounds of elections I've seen, the more sort of upsetting it has become. Yeah, it's a form of control. Well, right. And now we have this added problem of this, what will likely be declared in short order pandemic that will could be used in either side or in some way to interfere with the electoral process. All right, let's get in to that in a second, because before we started, you said you wanted to talk about the coronavirus. And <clears throat> let me give you what my position is on the coronavirus. Okay. And then you'll talk because you know what you're talking about. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a little a touch of the coronavirus in my throat. <laughs> Just a touch. So I interviewed <clears throat> we have a a source in China, Timothy Ulrich, he writes for Global Chinese Television Network. He's an American. Mm -hmm. He said to me, this is more of a public relations disaster for China than it is uh, a pandemic. He said, mm -hmm. per capita, more Americans die each year from the flu than Chinese are dying per capita from the coronavirus. He told me that the coronavirus in about a month will disappear because heat will kill the coronavirus, that it is seasonal. This flu will die as the temperatures increase. He told mm -hmm. me that there's a lot of prejudice towards China, some of it uh, <clears throat> not necessarily prejudice, but a lot of animus towards the nation mm -hmm. of China. And 
people with an agenda are using the coronavirus for their own uh, policy. Mm -hmm. So scientists use the coronavirus to push for more funding for the CDC. Politicians use the coronavirus to point out how inadequate Donald Trump is, and we can't trust Mike Pence to be the coronavirus czar. Every month is mm-hmm. something new. Last month, Donald Trump killed General Soleimani in mm-hmm. Iraq, and we were looking at World War Three, and right. it didn't materialize. Now we're looking at the coronavirus, <clears throat> the the shelves are empty you can't buy masks right Uh, you need emergency kits Uh, you said to me that you turned down i don't know if i we want to bring this up yeah yeah that's fine but you turned down a, a job because you didn't want to be exposed to the virus every couple of weeks we're all gonna die well guess what <laughs> folks i hate to break it to you we are all, except me, you are all going to die. Right. And they keep scaring us. And my feeling is, it, God forbid the media really scares us on the important stuff, like right. climate change or yeah. the, the, the 50,000 people each year who uh, die, maybe 90,000 who die because they're under or uninsured or the half a million people who are dying in the streets. I mean, the real things to be frightened of is the coronavirus being used by everybody for their own agenda. Okay. So I have a lot to say, but I first want to qualify everything that I say is, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a virologist. I don't work for the CDC any more than the person that you got your information from. Okay. What I am is a scientist who can read and have access to rapidly peer-reviewed published papers that are letting us know that we're getting new information all the time, right? So I am not an alarmist, and I'm not terrified. I am, I believe, appropriately concerned because of a few things. First thing that I want to sort of get off my chest is that I'm annoyed when people make this false equivalency with the flu. And here's why. Number one, the flu death rate. Yeah. Okay. We've had the flu for a very long time is 0.1%. Right. So that's a lot of people in a given flu season, but the death rate currently based on information that we have, even coming out of other countries, which might have more reliable reporting or potentially less reliable. Who knows? It's a constantly changing number, but it's at least higher than 1%, which is a big jump from 0.1% to even at minimum 1%, but it's looking more like 2 to 4%. Okay. Okay. So that's the first thing. They're not equivalent in lethality. The second thing is they don't even seem to be equivalent in transmissibility and i'll get back to that in a second okay but the third thing is we have a flu vaccine we do not have a vaccine for this and with 20 percent of people ending up in the icu this is a huge burden independent of if they recover or not on any medical infrastructure in in the best of circumstances 
right? Not even considering people who may be uninsured, underinsured, okay, elderly, right. other people. Imagine 20% of people in any volume of, of, of people infected having to end up in the ICU, even if they ultimately recover, but that takes several weeks. So, so they're not equivalent because we don't have a vaccine. There is a company uh, that is apparently, you know, preparing, but this, this may be six months to a year. Some qualities about this virus make it a tiny bit more concerning than the flu. For example, it has an HIV-like mutation. This recently just came out, which makes it even more ironic that Pence is in charge of this. Yes. We know he failed in Indiana. Uh, but it has an HIV-like mutation, which allows it to bind to human cells much more than, say, SARS did. And what does this mean? Well, they're finding, even in China and now in Japan, which let's say Japan might be slightly more reliable, that people can be recovered, discharged, and then several weeks later they are reactivated and are sick again, which means that it's um, something we call biphasic potentially. Now, that doesn't mean in everybody, but those people were released and were recovered, but the virus really just lay dormant in their system and then was reactivated a few weeks later and they're sick again. Meanwhile, the transmission seems to be not just in droplets, but potentially um, more easily transferred than the flu. Okay. So, so the good the news does is not go dormant and then reactivate after you had it, right? right? You don't get the flu and then get the same flu three weeks later. Okay. The good news is, People like me can say to their loved ones, I'm staying healthy by not going to the gym. Right. <laughs> exactly. Good. So, this is good and, news, folks. Yeah. And look, people shouldn't go panicking and all this stuff. I mean, what the CDC, my interpretation was, listen, you want to have things sorted as if there was some kind of emergency, just so you don't end up in crowded supermarkets. It's more like, social distancing okay then then oh that we won't have food available that's not that's not the point um i think that we had just the case in in california right now north Car Nor northern california they don't know how she got it the cdc did not test her over a week ago because they said oh she doesn't fit the criteria the initial hospital didn't use full ppe equipment and then she was transferred to another hospital on a respirator. So, so here's the thing. Other countries are far ahead in rapid testing and, and than we are and broader testing than we are. That's a bit concerning. And the funding that was cut has crippled the CDC from appropriately being able to respond. And the two pronged response should be te increased testing. And, uh, of anybody that tests negative for flu and which they've not been doing and, uh, working hard to get a vaccine and collaborating with other scientists in other countries, uh, because this is not going to go away just because it gets warm. We don't know that. It's not acting like a flu. It is not a flu. It is a coronavirus that has some interesting, from a scientific perspective, properties that make it 
a tad more worrisome. But that doesn't mean, oh, go panic, right? Well, so you're basically saying, if I hear you correctly, that George Soros invented the coronavirus to get Bernie <laughs> elected. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> Listen, I think this is going to be a real big test on our, our medical community. I'm worried about healthcare workers, really, yeah. and the fact that, the, that we don't have enough masks for them. And, and, you know, uh, and what people, how people will respond. So, so I think that accurate and reasonable information needs to be shared to prevent panic. The problem is when nobody's telling us anything and, and, and everybody's saying, Oh, don't worry. It's basically the flu. It's not. That okay. is not accurate. And, and all the scientific papers out on it confirm that. So, so that's not a reasonable thing to tell people because underneath we don't believe you. Okay. All so, right. so I think appropriate preparedness and getting good quality information, which is hard, um, and not having things being driven by economic concerns, you know, where, oh yeah, no, everything's fine. You know, the, the Dow is good. The Dow is good. The Dow is good. No, it's not. I'm like, who cares? Right. Right. Well, the right Dow, now, the Dow has plummeted because of it. Yeah. Well, it'll go back up again eventually. It'll be fine. That's not the biggest worry. The biggest worry is how are our hospitals going to cope with potentially 20% of infected people needing to be put in the ICU? It becomes the I don't see you. Mm, oh, right. Boy, that's as bad as the hoot. Or how people joke. are treating each other. These attacks on, on people, uh, uh, that are perceived to be of, of, uh, of Asian ethnicity is an indication of how uneducated we are or how poorly we are doing at, at, at educating the public because we're not having a free flow of information. Right. Right. And, and that should is is ridiculous. It shouldn't be tolerated. And uh, I turned down a show because I did not. I wanted to do the show, but to me, it wasn't worth it. We had a case in 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 Tempe, Arizona. The person was recovered and released, but given that that doesn't necessarily mean they are not going to be activated again and and contagious again. Uh, I decided, well, you know, Glendale, Arizona is still going to be there next year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I don't want to be in a room with over a hundred people and, and people who've been traveling from state to state right now. Hand sanitizer. Sure. Uh, yeah. Hand sanitizer, washing your hands, don't touch your face. Everything we say with the flu applies. Well, let's go right? through this. Let's go through this. Okay. Hand sanitizer. Don't don't touch your face. Yes. So this is actually not touching your your eyes, your face, your nose. This is actually harder to do than you might um, expect. Right. So so basically um, all the things, especially if you're in the back seat with your sister. I cannot tell (laughs) you the number of times I've said, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Right. So. So, you know, risk is, is low currently as far as we know. And, and so what you do is the same thing you do with anything. Don't touch your face. Don't touch your eyes, your nose, or your mouth. Um, start practicing that now. Wash your hands very often. And then, uh, or use the, the hand sanitizer, right? Right. Don't, um, basically, and this is great for Mike Pence to tell us, 
don't touch yourself. <laughs> Who better That's to right. remind us not to touch ourselves than the coronavirus czar, Mike Pence? Right. Don't touch and yourself, folks. Don't touch anybody else. So that exactly. works. <laughs> right. And maybe in Indiana, finally, the HIV rate will go down. Uh-huh. But, but you know, um, also they're sort of recommending just have a couple of weeks of medication. The reason for this is twofold, just like with food and other things. One, you don't want to have to go to crowded supermarkets with a bunch of aggressive people who are panicking now. Medication? Uh, what What medication? What do you take? Any any medication that you like, if, like prescription medication, right? Like. If you have diabetes or you, um, so this is also going to impact disproportionately people of lower economic status who won't have the resources to stock up on medication for a few weeks. Currently, the FDA is trying to figure out what they're going to do uh, or how they're going to not avoid um, shortages in medications because a lot of the ingredients are, are from China. Well, luckily here in the United States, most of us can't afford our medications. Well, that, so, that's true. Like insulin? Right? Who can afford insulin? It's funny, but, uh, right. Not no, funny. but it's not. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. And then, and this is where I, I, my, my point of this is going to really strain our healthcare system and disproportionately affect people who don't have reserves of money to be able to, um, do these things when there's local transmission. The advice is avoid close contact. Now, what is close contact? This will make Pence even happier. Two meters. That's six feet. Okay. So six feet is considered close contact. Hmm. And stop shaking hands. There's no reason to shake anybody's hand anymore. You just be like, Hey, right. Right. <laughs> right? And, and then. You know, don't panic. Just prepare, and and you may end up working from home. I mean, NYU has closed um, the campus in Italy. Other universities have canceled study abroad. At some point, depending on what's going on, let's say in in Northern California, schools may be tele telecommuting and telelearning. Right? Mm-hmm. That that could be the next thing because you don't want to. Ha- have contact with people here in new york city they just canceled competitive subway pole licking (laughs) well that 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 seems like a good idea even (laughs) when there isn't an unusual and what we don't know enough about yet virus circulating right i'm gonna tweet that hang on for one second due to the coronavirus let me just write that down new york city has canceled this year's Competitive subway pole licking. All right, go ahead. Let me tweet. No, no. I mean, I I think we could end on that. I mean, that's no, 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 no. Uh, What? So, if you come down with the uh, the symptoms, yeah, that doesn't. That's not a death sentence, right? No, no. I mean, most people are recovering, right? So, so, but, but again, the reason why it's a false equivalency with the flu is the flu is point one percent. And this is somewhere right now, based on our numbers, in the range of, you know, one to four mm-hmm. percent. And that could change and become smaller, and that'd be great news. What hasn't changed is that a high number of people end up in the ICU with severe respiratory problems, and the most of them do recover too. But if you come down with something that seems similar, you don't go rushing to the hospital. You're advised to at least my health department and and everything I've read has advised you call. 
Right. And you say, okay, this is what's going on, and that, that they have time to prepare, um, you know, in the event that this is the case. And I think that we need to really start broader testing and not have this uh, uh, really slow response of, well, they weren't in China, and they didn't talk to anybody that was in China. Therefore, we're yeah. not going to test them. Do you, the you masks know? work? So it's interesting, right? I've read a couple papers that have done some studies. They're not recommending that people wear masks out in public for a couple reasons. Um, one is it gives you a false sense of security, uh, and you end up actually touching your face a lot more trying to adjust hmm. the mask or it being irrit- irrit- an irritant on your face. Um, also, unless it's a 95 um, particle mask, which you can't even get now, um, it has to be fitted well to your face. The CDC did put out, uh, I think, uh, I think it was the CDC, a schematic for men with beards or goatees or others that, that those will interfere with the mask actually fitting your, your facial hair. So, you know, you might want to consider shaving your face if mm. you're going to try and wear a mask. Oh, I see. Um, so they don't generally recommend that for the average person. Uh, if you are sick, then be nice and wear a mask. But now we have to worry that you're going to get attacked because people, you might have a cold and not coronavirus and you don't want to, you know, spread it and, and people might attack you because they think you're infectious, which by the way is, is kind of foolish on the part of the people attacking. If you really believe somebody has the coronavirus, you should kind of stay away from them. Yeah. Not physically assault them. Um, if for no other reason, just that, but of course, morally and ethically for, for reasons just that it's inappropriate to physically attack people. So they're not recommending it. You can't get them. They're trying to make sure that healthcare workers have a, an appropriate supply of protective equipment. Um, so, you know, really hand washing and not touching your, your, not touching yourself. <laughs> Is is the best and and social distancing of you know basically six feet away from people yeah. is is your best strategy and having supplies so that you don't have to deal with aggressive you know panicked people if there is a case that crops up in your community. You know what's interesting talking to Dr. Jennifer Verdelin, who has a PhD and is a scientist and teaches animal conservation is this segment we witnessed two things an idiot like me who has an opinion about coronavirus and then we heard from a scientist who gave us facts about the coronavirus where you get your information is Mm -hmm. very important and whom you get your information from can save your life uh, live, life. Because <laughs> uh, I had a pretty strong opinion about the coronavirus, but it was an opinion based on some things I heard and read. It's good to listen to the scientists. Well, thank you. And I, I, I don't think by any stretch you you could be reasonably called an, an idiot. I think that you know, I have access to certain levels of information that is behind a paywall 
um, of journals, scientific journals for the, the average person. Plus I, I read, you know, scientific peer reviewed papers all the time. And that doesn't mean that they're going to always be right in this case because it's rapidly changing. But the but problem, least- the problem with this country is people get their information from the people who are most entertaining. So you'll listen to Tucker Carlson and Michael Savage and Rush Limbaugh. Uh, it, it takes, uh, some discipline to right. get your information from scientists because it tends to be, tends to be dry. Sure. And it's also more work to have to find information, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it's, so it's easy to be lulled into, and I'll try to be more entertaining. I don't, I don't know how to be, you, you're, you know, you're, I try. No, you're incredibly entertaining. <laughs> Oh, I'm just talking you. about the, the, the problem of allowing what is called, what they mistakenly call the free market of ideas to rise to right. the top. Uh, the, uh, science isn't a free market where people get to buy and sell concepts. There's, there are truths that are many times uh, uncomfortable and Hard, hard to purchase because people don't want those truths, like what you're, you know, what you're telling us about the coronavirus. I mean, I had a nice bedtime story that it that it was just another way to scare us. But now I'm uh, just hearing hearing your. I'm I'm actually pouring Purell down my ear hole. (laughs) Don't do that. You'll lose your hearing probably. And, you know, mine's a bedtime story, too. It's just that you're going to be in bed alone and six feet away from your partner. <laughs> and you're not going to touch yourself. So that makes it a bit of a sad sort of German, uh, you know, bedtime story. Okay. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin teaches at Arizona, the University of Arizona. She's an animal behaviorist who teaches animal conservation. Go to jenniferverdolin.com. And sign up for her newsletter. She answers all her emails. You should follow her on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen, D-R Jen, not uh, it's the abbreviation, Real Dr. Jen. And buy her two books, Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships, and Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with Tri-at-Home Lessons from the Wild, Subscribe to Wild Connection TV on YouTube. She has a great YouTube channel. And you can see Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. And she has her latest video is uh, she tells us the difference between a turtle and a tortoise. <laughs> Thank you, doctor. Can you stay on the line for one second? Absolutely. Thank, Thank you. you. Have you called in your backup e-coms now? See if we can get some more brain power in this We thing? got one here. Roger. Fly it in, go. Go ahead and go. Uh, he's, never mind. He's straightening up a little bit. Okay. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the uh, limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good. So if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two okay we want to keep the o2 and that kind of stuff working we'd like to have rcs but we got the command module system so we're in good shape if we need to get home let's solve the problem but let's not make it any worse by guessing
You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump. This is a pledge episode. I'm David Feldman, davidfeldmanshow.com, and today I ask you for money. I'm going to ask you to go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. So, let's talk about money. Let's talk about the people who have millions, the people who have billions, the people who are part of the richest 1% and call themselves Democrats. The people who don't earn the minimum wage, but instead pay it reluctantly. The people who want it all, and that includes those who want it all ideologically. I'm talking about the multimillionaires, the billionaires in the Democratic Party. The billionaires and the multimillionaires who are rich enough to buy the term Democrat, to buy the term progressive. And if we're not careful, they will end up owning what it means to be a leftist. Let's start with a very simple proposition that America needs two parties. One party that believes in small government and big business. That would be the Republicans. And another party that stands for the worker. That would be the Democrats. That's a dialectic they have in Europe. And that's a dialectic that makes for honest debate something sorely missing during Monday's Democratic food fight. Now, the Republicans have done a pretty good job, especially under Trump, of defining who exactly they are. They want small to non-existent government in favor of big business. That forces us, and by us I mean Democrats, to offer an alternative, which we're not doing. And that's why America continues to barrel towards an oligarchy, where every facet of our government serves only the richest 1%. The Democrats need to represent the 99%. But since Clinton, possibly Jimmy Carter, the Democratic Party has gotten addicted to Wall Street money. It is addicted to big money. And as an alcoholic, I know one thing. The best way to kick a bad habit is to make new friends. The Democrats have to stop hanging out with a moneyed class. And then... We have to purge the party of the moneyed class. We have to keep our distance because the moneyed class is dealing an intoxicant that abducts our soul. It turns us into the Clintons, the Gores, the Bidens, the Careys, even, dare I say, the Obamas. It turns us into a zombie party where we look and sound like Democrats, but there's nothing there. If Bernie is nominated, and I think he might be, it will only be because of all the candidates, Bernie is the only one truly alive. The rest are zombies. They are walking corpses, merely animated by the false spark of the moneyed class. Now, we have a lot to learn from Donald Trump. He purged the Republican Party of the Bush and Reagan old guard, that establishment. And after he purged the Republican Party of the Bushes and the Reagans, he won. And despite all his negatives and their legion, he's going to be tough to beat in November because he has his base 
And the people who are on the fence, who aren't sure about him, still trust him because they know exactly who he is and what he's going to do because they know who he stands for. The Democrats need to do the same thing. We need to purge our party. But we need to purge our party of ultra-rich centrists like the Clintons and Obamas and go all in on Bernie's base to the exclusion of every billionaire and multimillionaire who right now has a seat at the Democratic Party's table. Tell Biden to get lost. He is a millionaire, a multimillionaire who takes money from billionaires. Tell Mayor Pete to get lost. Yes, he's not a millionaire yet, but he takes his marching orders from the billionaires in the wine caves. Tell Bloomberg to get lost. Get rid of the Democratic Party's richest 1%. Get rid of the Democrats who work as errand boys for the richest 1%. You know who I'm talking about. The Perez's, the Dashells, the Chelsea Clintons, the children of Al Gore, the children of Joe Biden, the children of John Kerry, the ones who work on K Street, who shuffle in between academia and seven-figure jobs on Wall Street. We need to reinvent the Democratic Party the way Bill Clinton did in 1992. But this time, make it a party for the working class, laborers, the single moms, the homeless, the disenfranchised, those without a voice. Let's go all in on the 99% and tell rich Democrats, the multimillionaires, that they're not welcome at the table. We'll take your money, we'll take your vote, but you're not dictating policy. Imagine the margin of victory when the 100 million people in America who can vote but don't vote suddenly realize that there actually is a party for them, a party that believes in unions, a party that believes every single billionaire is a policy failure, a party that believes health care should be free, college education at public universities should be free, that all public schools deserve the same funding, that we should prosecute the oil executives who kept the science of climate change secret, who believe that abortion, like religion, is not to be debated in the public square, who believe that guns are lethal in the hands of criminals and cops, who believe the LGBTQ must be protected from crazy Christians, that the Pentagon's budget is 80% waste, prison labor should be abolished, and that the financial sector is a drag on the world's economy. The only way to reinvent the Democrats is by telling the Clintons, the Obamas, the Bidens, the Gores, who represent management, who represent the moneyed class, we have to tell them you have too much money, you're not one of us, and while you can vote for us, you're going to keep your mouth shut. You're not running the party. Now, don't tell me Bernie has three homes and a million bucks. When you say that, you reveal how ignorant you are, that you don't understand socialism. 
There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with making money. We're talking about redistributing it. There's something wrong with having too much money. I'm talking about the Americans with more than $50 million, the sociopaths who measure their life by what they have, not who they love. There's nothing wrong with having three homes and a million dollars. We need a Democratic Party that shames the wealthy and their idiot kids. We need a Democratic Party that terrifies, not makes nice with, terrifies the richest 1%. We need a party that teaches police officers to protect people first and property second. We need a Democratic Party that will engage in class war with the same ideological fervor that the richest 1% wages class war upon us. That is how unions were born. That is how the eight-hour day was born and how child labor was eliminated. You don't seek consensus with the person who has a boot on your face. The Obamas live on Martha's Vineyard. They are approaching $100 million. They are management. They now have a boot on your face. The Clintons have a boot on your face. John Kerry is married to Teresa Hines, heir to the Hines fortune. They have a boot on your face. You don't seek consensus in the Democratic Party with the people who have a boot on your face. You take that boot and then you push back. You don't ask the 1% for permission. You take what they have the same way they have taken what you have. You tax them, you shame them, you regulate them, and you write laws that force them to live in our world, obeying our laws. You don't ask. You dictate their behavior. This economy and this democracy must work for everybody. It took 60 rape victims for Harvey Weinstein to finally go to prison. How many young girls had to be raped until Jeffrey Epstein finally went to prison? And by the way, Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein, Democrats. Rich Democrats believe they're above the law. That's why Barack Obama got away with killing American citizens with drones overseas. This economy, this legal system, works for everybody or it doesn't work at all. And any Democrat who doesn't understand that is part of the problem. Any Democrats who think you can return to our FDR roots by cuddling up to the millionaire Harvard centrists in our party, any Democrats who believe that? Well, you don't understand the trajectory of history. Great political parties lead by pointing in one direction. FDR pointed in one direction. Lyndon Johnson pointed in one direction. You don't win by pointing a little more to the left than the other party. The American people, whether they like the Bernie bros or not, the American people will follow if you tell them where you're heading. 
And if you're a party that's heading for K Street, Wall Street, health insurance companies, health insurance executives, the Pentagon, the defense contractors, Facebook, Amazon, Walmart, and Exxon, if you're a party that's heading for them, you will win. So let's purge the Democratic Party right now of the centrists, the same way Donald Trump purged his party of its centrists. We're running out of time on climate change, income inequality, and health care. The clock is ticking. It's zero hour. Time to pick sides. The Republicans have told us exactly what they believe. Now, this might be uncomfortable for you middle-of-the-road centrists trying to seek consensus, trying to get along. This is uncomfortable for you to hear. But the Democrats right now need to figure out exactly what they're for and who, who they are against. Who are you against? Not what are you against? Who are you against? There are bad people in America. There are bad people running the White House. There are bad people running the Democratic Party. Rahm Emanuel is a bad person. Steny Hoyer is a bad person. Nancy Pelosi, bad person. She is not going to get you Medicare for all or a Green New Deal. These are bad people who are errand boys for the richest 1%. There are bad people in America. It's not only what you're for, it's who you're against. Health insurance executives and their employees are bad people. Oil executives and their lobbyists are murderers. They are bad people. America has more than 2 million people in prison because there are bad people. Corporate lawyers are bad people because 90% of the time they're probably doing something harmless, but 10% of the time... Somebody's dying because of them. Don't tell me you like everybody, because if you do like everybody, you're a fool. You need political enemies. And the people who don't have enemies don't realize that they are somebody else's enemy. You're not being kind by walking in the middle of the road. You're not kind seeking consensus with the devil. You're getting yourself and the rest of us killed. Telling Democrats to be civil, to understand evil, is like telling an alcoholic, go ahead, have a glass of wine. At some point, you must decide who you are and whose side you're on. Are you on the side of management or are you on the side of the worker? You can't be on both sides. You can't understand both sides. We didn't get the minimum wage. We didn't eliminate child labor by understanding management. Whose side are you on? This is a pledge episode. I'm David Feldman. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. I accept all major credit cards, and there's nothing wrong with having three homes and making money. There's something wrong with not having enough money.
You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let us now go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by. He was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. Besides being a lawyer, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is also an ordained minister in the United Church of I, I know I can pronounce this properly. Christ is it Christ? Absolutely. Okay, it's perfect. Welcome. Your elocution has developed so much over the past six months, and I take full credit. Thank you, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. I I roll my R's and that's I very good. Joins. Okay, that's very good. Well, let's talk about the coronavirus because. The stock market collapsed during the past couple of days on fears that the world is about to drop dead. Are we overreacting to the coronavirus? No, I don't think we're overreacting to it. I think the markets are not even overreacting to it. The people who have a huge amount of money in the markets, of course, uh, are putting the money somewhere. It's, and they're going to be putting it back in the market when it's good for them to do so. But I hope you're not suggesting it's a good thing for this market to collapse in the way that it has over the past three days. Because billionaires who lose 10% are going to live fine. They have hundreds of millions of dollars left. But all those people who got screwed during the Reagan administration, when the Reagan people allowed them to lose their pensions, in some cases not even to know their pensions have been lost. Now they're desperately trying to put money into IRAs. They're now at points of retirement. I don't want to see those people hurt by these massive fluctuations. So I don't take any pleasure in the decline of the stock market, and I don't think the decline in the stock market is going to be long enough or substantial enough that it's going to, as many of my Twitter people say this afternoon, this will help us guarantee that Trump will lose. It ain't going to be that bad. Right. Here's here's the problem. The health thing is really bad. The what? The health consequences are really significant. But so is the the stock market. And I'll get, get to that in a second. Let's talk about the health scare in a second. But the stock market is problematic because it subconsciously creates acquiescence. You become part of the system that's oppressing you because you think you're the beneficiary of a market that 80% of Americans don't participate in. 80% of Americans don't own stock. Whatever exposure they have, it's a little, you know, they have a 401k, and they've been hoodwinked into believing that their fortunes rise and fall with the stock market, when in fact, 
when the stock market goes up, it's because of profits that are born on the shoulders of workers who are being laid off and being paid less or seeing their job shipped overseas. But that's all part of the branding that we're all susceptible to. We're told that it's good for everybody when the stock market goes up. It isn't. It is not good. It's good for the you know, the richest 5% of this country. Yeah, well, um, I have to push back a little on that. When you have an overvalued stock market, as we've had for many, many years, there there is an illusion that you're talking about that people, in fact, think, well, I, I don't have many stocks, or I have a tiny number of stocks, but I, it must be good for me. But my point is, when it's not good, in other words, the people with their little smidgen of stock, when they lose over the last three days, 10% because they've been convinced to buy into these high-moving uh, stocks or fast-moving stocks, it really does hurt them. There's no way a 75-year-old retiree can recover if she or he has right. lost 11%. There's, there's no time left to wait and see what happens in some glorious age to come. They're screwed right now. I, I understand what you're saying, and you're doing something that the Democrats are adept at, which is acknowledging the problem, which is the symptom of a, a, a rot in the system. In other words, you're absolutely right. When there's a housing bubble, people suffer. When there's a stock market bubble and it pops, people suffer. But there's a a rot uh, that stems from the Reagan administration that took several generations of Americans who knew to stay out of the stock market. Reagan got in to the Oval Office and it was, hey, get into the stock market. Can't go down. You can't go wrong. And they've built this narrative that... Over time, the stock market is a great investment so long as, you know, you are wise and smart and are personally responsible. Uh, we shouldn't be encouraging people to gamble. And the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve is making it impossible for senior citizens or people approaching retirement to put their money anywhere else but the stock market. When you keep interest rates low, you can't find a bond, a safe bond that pays a, a healthy interest rate. So you're told, put it into the market. Whose fault is that? That's the Federal Reserve's fault. That's the banker's fault. They all want Americans investing in the stock market, as opposed to buying safe treasury bonds. Well, that's right. I mean, I that is correct. But on the other hand, do you know what the effect would be of having the Fed say, you know, really, we know this is story. I think this historic low was reached about 48 hours ago. It was like 1.4% on a treasury. But if you 
if that didn't exist, if they said, look, we've decided treasuries are going to give 3%, what do you think the result would be from all the big corporations that people like you and I don't like if all of a sudden their cost of borrowing money went up to 3.5%? They would do even less for the workers. They would take less time and less consideration of anything except what they always will worry about, their bottom line. So once again, the workers, the retirees, the people who thought they maybe still had pensions but didn't realize that they don't, they're still going to get screwed. Yeah, yeah. But We're- there's no solution that comes from the manipulation of Federal Reserve rates. It's just it's not realistic. It's not going to happen. Yeah, we're, we're talking a language that nobody understands, including exactly. The well, let's start. Let's talk about monkeys then. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the problem because most Americans aren't bilingual, and most Americans don't understand currency exchange because they don't have to. But you go to Canada, they understand currency exchange, they understand the global economy. Most Americans don't, but they have opinions. I can't tell you the number of Americans I will discuss <laughs> politics with. And then you bring up the Federal Reserve and fiscal policy and they go, well, I don't understand that. And I don't understand the, the, uh, <laughs> I don't understand the stock market, but here's the thing that I do know. And I go, whoa, 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 whoa. You're right. going to talk to me about mm-hmm. how tax cuts for the rich juice the economy and balance the budget, but you don't understand. The Federal Reserve and fiscal policy and stock market, but you, but you know what? I mean, we don't understand how the economy works. They don't want us no. to understand what of has to be. We need to return to Keynesian economics, where it's Congress dictating the trajectory of our economy, not the Federal Reserve, not unelected bankers working over at the Federal Reserve. It's messy. It's dirty. Congress determines inflation and spending and not interest rates. Interest rates don't create jobs. Raising and lowering interest rates and manipulating the economy just creates paper shuffling. Real jobs, real growth comes from a stimulus package. That's fiscal spending. That's that's, right. that's where, you know, infrastructure that's how you create a, a healthy economy that, that grows and helps everybody, not the bankers. But nobody can have that conversation because most Americans don't understand the difference between fiscal policy and monetary policy. And I'm, you know, when people, I, I just want to say correct. one thing and that's then I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut up. I apologize. Sure. But, you know, I'm a Bernie bro. <laughs> okay. I'm a Bernie bro. And I get of into course. it with people and when I, and they argue with me and I say, if you don't know the difference between fiscal policy and monetary policy, then you are not equipped to talk to me about Bernie. Or modern monetary theory. Ooh, you're an asshole. Yeah, I guess I am. All right, I'll be quiet. Mike Pence. Thank God Mike Pence is in charge of the coronavirus. Absolutely, because he's a man I trust to do everything, including pray it away. <laughs> Mike, Pence, Mike, Mike Pence, of course, was described just yesterday when he was appointed to be the CC, as we call it, the coronavirus czar, Mm -hmm. Uh, that uh, he was really quite an expert in public health. That's what the president said. And uh, unfortunately, today, uh, Mike Pence had a few other things to do. 
in addition to his busy work, he was over at the Conservative Political Action Committee conference, which has ah. been going for the next couple of days, right. uh, where every conservative hack in America comes and promotes their what used to be considered by all screwy ideas, but now have become increasingly mainstream. And while he was there today, he uh, he addressed something of importance that I wish the critics of Bernie Sanders would come to grips with. When Pence was there today, he, he announced that every, every Democrat running for the presidency was a supporter of democratic socialism. So when people start saying, well, you know, if Bernie's the nominee, uh, they're just going to call him a socialist. They're going to call everybody a socialist. They're going to call Amy Klobuchar, who is far from socialism as you can get and still be a Democrat, that she is a socialist. Even though, of course, she was the one person who raised her hand a few debates ago mm -hmm. and said she would feel uncomfortable if a democratic socialist were at the top of the ticket. Mm. It doesn't matter who it is. Biden will become a socialist. Bloomberg will become a socialist. They're all socialists. So we got to get out of this idea that you can't talk about Bernie Sanders being the top of the ticket without alienating all the people who will say, oh, my God, he's a socialist. They'll say that about everybody. So we should tick that off and say that's not a reason to complain about Bernie Sanders. The Catholic Church, they do good work in Nicaragua and Cuba. Sure. So they're socialists. Well, many, many Catholic priests on the ground in Latin America are socialists. I mean, they would be happy to tell you that if you ask them. Um, but the hierarchy of the church, of course, has many other problems. You know, you mentioned Cuba. One of the things over the past week that has been most annoying to me in discussions about Bernie is his claim that he said something too nice about Cuba. And here's all he said. You know, he's, he's said that they're uh, totalitarian. He said that, but he did say, but when Castro took over, he brought literacy to the people. Now, how can anybody say, well, it would be better to be illiterate, unable to read and write, because that would be better than being literate. So then the, the second level of argument became, well, he only wanted them to read so they could read propaganda. Mm. Guess what? There are, there's still, and were even in the worst of the Castro times in Cuba, there were other magazines and books floating around. Yes, you can read the propaganda, but at least you have a possibility of reading something else, which you don't have if you are illiterate. So that argument also, it just, it's the stupidest thing. And I'm appalled that so many Democrats in Florida running for the House have had the audacity to say, well, he just lost Florida and he's probably lost us our seat too. get over it, explain it and run with it and admit that there are terrible things done by bad people in the world. But every single thing they do isn't. That's the only point that Bernie was trying to make. The journalistic malpractice that takes place during these debates 
I mean, Chris Matthews should be taken to Central Park. And, well, I don't want to, you know where I'm going with that. Of course. Yeah. They don't explain. They don't give any history lessons. They just throw oil on the flame. They just, they want more, more gasoline. Here's a question that'll get you guys yelling at one another. No historical perspective. And, so my question to you, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, is we always told ourselves that liberals, the Democratic Party, we're the party of readers and intellectuals. Four years ago, the Republicans showed their true colors. Are we seeing what the Democratic Party truly is? Are we a party of intellectuals? The debate that we just had in South Carolina was that was that a party of of intellectuals of statesmen? <laughs> no, no. Was, but look at the rules at that. That I've been watching these debates since the Kennedy Nixon debates. This was the worst single debate between Republicans or Democrats in the history of the medium of televised debates. These CBS interviewers could not control, for starters, could not control the candidates. Now, there are multiple problems with that. When you announce that part of the rules are you will give people one, one minute and 15 seconds for the answers. Can, that's like saying, hey, could you explain how you're going to pay for Medicare for all, but you only have 75 seconds to do it. Mm -hmm. But then compounding the problem is when you go over that, they don't tell you, tell your staff and tell the public, if you go 10 seconds over, we're cutting off the microphone. We're cutting off the microphone. So then you have the spectacle of Biden, who I must say didn't do as bad a job as he usually does in these debates, who say, he went over time. I'm going to keep talking. Right. It, it makes the whole thing look like an absurdity. It looks like the intellectual, quote unquote, intellectual equivalent of professional wrestling. Yeah. 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 Well, how do you think Bernie did? I think Bernie won the debate. I agree. Because I, he was obviously uh, the focus of all the incoming fire. I think he handled himself extraordinarily well. And I, I think he, in many ways he did better on that than he did on the town hall on CNN, where I thought he was just it was a little off, I thought. Yeah. What about you? I didn't see the CNN town hall. I think that Bernie has figured out how to brand uh, his ideology, his policy, and just repeat. If you repeat the truth over and over again, it becomes the truth, to paraphrase <laughs> Joseph Goebbels. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, the, the debates are really dishonest. They're intellectually dishonest. I think Elizabeth Warren is honest intellectually, but the rest uh, just throw out platitudes and applause lines. I mean, we didn't even know. We didn't even know who the audience was until hours after the debate. I didn't know that people paid. It was like, a, you know, Bruce Springsteen on Broadway. Only the people who could afford it got to talk about exactly. the working man. 
You know, for between fifteen hundred and three thousand dollars to get a seat to watch that. But nobody said uh, that. It, nobody said. Of that. course they didn't. You know, uh, that's somebody. Ju- excuse me for a second. Of, that's journalistic malpractice on the part of I CBS. I agree with that. It absolutely is. It should not have happened. And a lot of people complained about the ads from Bloomberg that were running during the debate, um, which also I, I think they should have been prudent enough, if not moral enough, to say this is the inappropriate place to do it. But nobody complained about all the health care ads, which not only appeared in the debate, but also appeared in the two nights of the town halls on CNN. All these things that we will fix surprise billing. Here is our plan. And then at the bottom, you, you hear about some organization you've never heard of, which is certainly either a big corporation or directly from the pharmaceutical industry. Nobody complains about that. That's dishonest, too. And you and I have talked about this many times. But I, I think it's imperative that people understand who these people are that are advertising policies in the midst of these heavily watched. I mean, enormous millions of people have watched the last two Democratic debates, and they're all being sold a bill of goods by all the ads in between the debate segments themselves. And that's a disgrace, too. In the 50s. Go ahead. I I mean, I I did want to talk... This idea of the questions. Hold on, I I have that. I want to ask you about town halls versus debates and what are more effective in a second. Uh, In the 50s, Adlai Stevenson, who ran against Eisenhower twice, learned about television advertising. And he said, you mean you're going to start selling candidates like soap? (laughs) That's right. And now we have Bloomberg and Steyer. People in South Carolina have no idea. Well, Bloomberg isn't running in South Carolina, but nobody knows who Tom Steyer is. Nobody should know who Tom Steyer is. But he in South Carolina sold himself on television like soap. And he's showing up, you know, 17 percent. He's in third place in South Carolina right right. now. Nobody knows who Michael Bloomberg is, nor should they. And on Super Tuesday, he's going to Ross Perot his way into, you know, the race. Well, there's not a lot of evidence that he's actually been able to do that. But I will say, and then we can get back to the debates and the debate format, but the advertisement that's begun to run today about his response to disasters in New York City is a damn good ad. And I think it is an honest ad. I think he is talking about the things he did post 9-11 to build New York back as a city over the many terms that he served as its mayor. And it's a very effective ad. And effective ads that are not dishonest uh, we could argue all day whether you could, you should be able to sell as many as he's selling, but it doesn't trouble me as much. Do you live in New York? Do you live in New York? No. Oh, so, yeah. so, so you're susceptible <laughs> but, to the ad as opposed to the truth because it's not a livable city. Under Bloomberg, it became more unlivable than it's ever been in the past. Except, well, except it, if you're a tourist or a billionaire. 
<laughs> well, look, uh, there's, I think, no question that he added more units of affordable housing than any mayor before him or after him, including the current mayor, Bill de Blasio. I mean, he had a plan. He increased the capacity of people to have after-school programs and all of the things that he touts. Those, I think, are legitimate accomplishments, not just in his advertising, but in the city of New York itself, right? No. Wrong. He didn't add, it. He didn't add affordable housing. He Whatever affordable housing he added didn't offset the skyrocketing real estate prices that his zoning created when he bent over backwards for real estate developers. He built the city up. I mean, you can't afford rent in, in Manhattan. That's right. So affordable housing, Manhattan is only for rich people now. And, you know, and, and people who are lucky who win the affordable housing lottery. In terms of the schools, right. it was uh, de Blasio who gave the city universal preschool, not not uh, Mayor Bloomberg. He created an apartheid state. It started under Giuliani, but he created an yeah. apartheid state where millions, not millions, but uh, hundreds of thousands of African-Americans, especially young men, were thrown up against the wall, stopped and frisked, arrested because they found, you know, a joint. One of the things, you know, I know uh, an African-American kid who spent a week in jail because he was profiled and they wanted to get him into the system. Uh, he was let out after a week, but that's traumatizing. You live with that for the rest of your life. Uh, he's, you know, apologized for it, but what, you know, why would we think he's equipped to deal with any of the problems facing this country? Well, let me ask you this. Why would Amy Klobuchar or even our supported candidate at the moment, Bernie Sanders, what does he how does he govern the United States? I mean, what's the evidence that he knows how to do it? He he has a plan. He talks about it. He has just the philosophy that people like you and I love. But where's the evidence that he knows how to do the nuts and bolts of dealing with the coronavirus? How do we know that he has the nuts and bolts to deal with the foreign policy that we need to have with China? What's his experience? He doesn't have any. Uh, Does well, he? Well, senators, well, he was the mayor of Burlington. But uh, that's true. A lovely city, lovely city. But, you know, uh, who has experience? But, but that's part of my point is that it's very difficult to imagine how any of these people have the experience necessary to govern 
from the first day when when a catastrophic event occurs a week into their presidency who's going to be prepared and now biden says well he's the one that's prepared on the very first day uh, but um uh, joe biden has so many counts against him that the fact that he can name the last three presidents of Mexico may not be enough to guarantee that he has the negotiating clout to do what needs to be done in the event of a calamity that occurs early in his presidency. I'd like to believe that that's true, but I don't have any basis for concluding that he did all the things that he now attributes to being given to his portfolio by President Obama. Right. President Obama... Uh, you know, he uh, he got around to doing some things, but uh, sure as hell took him a long time to do the right thing in many other instances. Well, you know, the, the president, uh, you know, when you're the president, you oversee about three and a half million employees of the executive branch. And mm-hmm. you point them in a direction. Some of them will follow, some won't. You set the tone, you set the priorities, you give the marching orders. Uh, Trump doesn't know the first thing about governing, but he's certainly governing. He's setting a tone. We're marching. So, you know, it's what you believe in. It's your ideology, your passion and your ability to communicate. Bernie has that. And I like what he believes in. He's not going to accomplish everything. This isn't a dictatorship, but Roosevelt failed. Most of Roosevelt's ideas failed, but the things that stuck, stuck, right? What do you prefer, a town hall, a debate, a one-on-one interview? What do you you think is the... No, I think the town hall is the best solution. And the town hall gives the opportunity for some professional journalist, and although it's hard for me to even believe that Chris Cuomo, for example, is a professional journalist, but he can ask some questions or ask some follow-ups. And then, although I wish they didn't do this, they didn't pre-pick the questions that were going to be asked, but there is, in a in a better format, the opportunity for a handful of the people in the town hall to actually interact with the candidate, ask a question, and I wish also to have a follow-up. Okay. Because because that's the best way to get issues out. And, and as I was starting to say a few minutes ago, it's appalling to me that the same questions asked in debate number one when they were that they had to stretch it over two nights were pretty much the same issues and the same questions and frankly the same answers that were given in Las Vegas last week and in South Carolina's debate this week. I, I wanted to pose a couple of questions. These are the kind of questions I wish yeah, let me someone ask had asked. Let me okay. let me ask you about that because yep. Uh, I'm interrupting you because I know what questions you want asked. And, okay. Uh, the, 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 the question of charter schools, you, you feel that there wasn't enough of a discussion about charter schools. There's a video circulating of a six-year-old girl handcuffed and being arrested for a temper tantrum at an Orlando, Florida charter school. And Correct. You, you feel that the Democrats 
should be debating charter schools. Well, I do, but I but I, I want to preface that with something. Elizabeth Warren is as committed as anybody in the Democratic Party that's running to the preservation and expansion of public education. And she says that all the time. So I have when I was hearing that and I assumed she would then say, and, you know, there are some uh, private, excuse me, some public schools. They're called charter schools. And I have some reservations about them, but you didn't say anything about it. So I wrote to the Americans United's. uh uh, legislative director who's still there and who was there during the, the t- much of the tenure that I spent there. And I said, what does she really think about charter schools? And Elizabeth Warren has a very substantive, very nuanced way to deal with charter schools, not close them all down tomorrow, which is what I would like to do, Amen. but it's nuanced. Yeah, it's, but it's nuanced and it's, it's serious, but she shouldn't be afraid to then say, I want to tell you why charter schools, which a lot of people are flirting with, is are really not a good solution. She, should be, she shouldn't be afraid to say that. I mean, uh, Cory Booker was a fan of charter schools and school vouchers and all kinds of other sideshows to improving public education. But she's not. And since she has a plan and she has legitimate criticisms and a genuine solution, she should have talked about it. What does Joe Biden think about charter schools? What does Pete Buttigieg think about This is a big issue. This is a huge way in which young people are being educated in New York, in Houston, in Washington, D.C., and it's largely ignored by these candidates. I I want to unify this country. I'm Pete Buttigieg. I want to unify us and bring us together. And the best way to bring us all together is to (laughs) hive off and send our kids to charter schools Little pods, they don't have to mingle with anybody else, and they can be surrounded by other white people. That's how you unify the country. It's undemocratic. Our our school system, our public school system is undemocratic. Why are you against charter schools? I'm against charter schools because of the splitting up. And of course, there are in Washington, there are plenty of people running charter schools who are not white people. There are people who are attempting to prove that their charter school is a Hispanic focused school, an Afro centered school. But it's the breaking up of people broken up enough in every major city in this country to then send their kids to a place where you're never going to see someone of a different ethnicity or religion is terrible. And, of course, many of these, although they are supposed to be public schools, try getting information about them under, say, the Freedom of Information Act or a public school. They ought to be accessible to that. It takes forever to do that. I, I do remember, I got a call one day, probably a decade ago from Ralph Nader. And he said he was, um, he was on the board of some 
foundation that was considering supporting charter schools. And I said, that's a terrible idea. And he said, I know you do. Can I take you to lunch and say, you're going to make a presentation about why charter schools should not be supported by this philanthropy? I said, of course, I'd love that opportunity. And I gave a speech. I answered the questions. Ralph uh, indicated he was very upset about this, didn't think it. And they never supported charter schools. They're good arguments. If you look at the numbers, to the extent that we, we even care about numbers anymore, if you take charter schools, private schools, and public schools, and look at their math scores, their English scores, public schools, they don't do well always, but they do better than the private schools, and everybody does better than the charter schools. Unless you're the one charter school that Bill Gates has decided to give a computer to every kid. I think it's up in, uh, in Brooklyn. And then and their kids all go to college. That's because they have a computer at home that most kids in Philadelphia schools are lucky to have half a textbook at home. Yeah. They have to share their biology textbook with the kid who sits next to them and they can only take them home every other day. Right. That's a disgrace. Of course, if you give people a computer, the ability to use it and it's their private computer and they take it home every day, of course they're going to do better. This does not take a genius to figure out, and it should not be proof or claim this proof, that charter schools work wonders. They don't. They don't. They're non-union. They pay, of course. They pay lower salaries, and uh, they succeed in one thing, making sure that your kids are going to school with uh, other white kids or... Uh, you know, uh, blacks. Other and, Islamic kids, yeah, sure. Blacks and Hispanics from the same socioeconomic class as you. Of course, I'm not racist. <laughs> I'm just classist. <laughs> exactly. The um, let me ask you about unionizing other- sex workers. Do you really think that that is an important question to be asked in a debate? I do, and here's why: because it would be a completely unexpected question. This is something that deeply divides feminists in the United States now. Should sex workers be allowed to unionize, which gives them a patina of support? Some feminists say they shouldn't have any. But is it legal? I mean, you have to to legalize sex work before you can unionize it. Well, in in Nevada, where I, I thought this question should come up. Oh, I see. You do Good have, point. Yeah. Yeah. But but but, you know, sex workers are uh, it's it's people who do erotic phone calls. It's people in the porn industry. It's people who are non sexual escorts, all of these things. And these women and, it's, and some men, but it's primarily women, they do want to unionize. And there's a huge fight about it. And I'd like to see people, including Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, all of whom, these people are all great supporters of unions. What do they think about that question? Because it would be unexpected, and they'd have to think on their feet. And I'd like to see that, because the 800th time if somebody asks about um redlining or what would you what did you think of the crime bill those are all predictable answers just as they are predictable questions i agree with you thank you you know i'm a sex worker and i would like 
a union to protect me from this race to the bottom. I am so sick of this race to the bottom, and uh, what they're doing is... Okay, that was a bad joke. Uh, let us now turn to Bernie and the Supreme Court. You still believe that he should pack the court. Um, yes, I prefer to call it an expansion of the court. In fact, I recently purchased, although I haven't used it yet. A uh, court packer? Laptops. Where do you buy a court packer? You, 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 you buy it. Uh, it's at, at one of the rungs of, of the sex workers that you oh, would just disparage. <laughs> now, no, but in the burning for Bernie question, Bernie knows, he clearly knows over the last month or so that there's something wrong with the Supreme Court and that it does threaten the possibility of getting his major uh, programs through. But instead of saying we should expand the court, and he does the predictable answer that, well, if we added three more seats, then the next time there's a Republican, uh, they'll add 10 more seats and then we'll get up to 800 seats. But he's floating this idea. And it's it's not crazy, but it's so complicated. I'm trying to simplify it so that I can actually figure out what it is to communicate. He's floating the idea, not expanding the court, but just transitioning some of the existing justices to lower federal courts or add all the appellate court justices as potential associate judges of the United States Supreme Court. And then through some kind of lottery system, uh, you'll, you'll figure out which nine of them will sit on a particular case. Now, it's not crazy. There are law lawyers and constitutional scholars who say you might be able to do that, particularly the latter. That, uh, But question, the first time he or anyone says, let's think about moving some of these justices out of the position of sitting on every case. It will be challenged, and guess who will ultimately hear the case? That would be the United States Supreme Court. Do you think that any of these characters, even our beloved Ruth Bader Ginsburg, would willingly say, you know, come to think of it, maybe I will just sit on a case every month or two. Well, it's ridiculous. It's so complicated. Just increase the size, explain why you're doing it, and take your chance. Oh, Bernie, Sand Bernie Sanders has a position, which I think is the right one, although I'm even nervous about it, of having felons who are still in prison be allowed to vote. Now, if you're not afraid to take that position and explain why Harvey Weinstein ought to be voting, why Roger Stone ought to be voting, and the Boston bomber should be voting, then I think you can get away with explaining why you should increase the size of the Supreme Court. It's not that controversial. Yes, I think Harvey Weinstein should be allowed to vote, just not for the Academy Awards. <laughs> and I want to say, uh, apparently, he had to go to Bellevue complaining of heart palpitations. It's nice to see him clutching his own chest for a change. And those are my jokes that I had prepared for this segment that I... That was good. That's yeah, a very good yeah. joke. I, I kind of shoehorned them in. And you can't tell. It kind of sounds like I... 
you know, off the top of my head. Unlike Michael Bloomberg, you know, Michael Bloomberg has a comedian writing his jokes. Yeah. And and they're not terrible jokes, but he has terrible timing. I mean, his joke about the naked cowboy to the extent that anybody outside of of New York or perhaps uh, someone who was horrified to see the naked cowboy somewhere close to Times Square when they were bringing their children to go to the Walt Disney store there. I mean, they were delivered terribly. But your jokes are good jokes. But he couldn't even tell your jokes well because he doesn't have any timing. That's right. All right. Before you go, South Carolina this Saturday, Joe Biden, what happens? Does he finally win a primary? He, uh, He has never won anything. He's never won a primary or a caucus. Nope, I think he does win. I, I think Jim Clyburn, uh, who I know a little bit, uh, he's a powerful figure in the African-American community and, and certainly in South Carolina in particular. His endorsement yesterday made a huge difference, and I, do, I think it will be literally a blowout on Saturday. Uh, Biden will win. But then the question is, so what? Where is he going to go just days later? How is he going to possibly raise enough money to send organizers to places like California where Bernie's way ahead? Uh, where does he go? I mean, every time he gets asked this over the last 48 hours, I'm going to win South Carolina. I believe that. And then they say, are you going to drop out? And he says, well, of course not. But where do you go? How is the South Carolina Saturday night primary going to possibly translate into a half a dozen competitive states next Tuesday? He's not going to go anywhere with this. This is not a springboard. People are already bored by Democratic primaries, Democratic caucuses. And if he wins, even if he wins by... 10 percentage points, there's nowhere for him to go. He's, and I have to say, he, he's another guy that does extremely well in these town halls. The town hall he did just on, on Tuesday night of, of uh, Wednesday night of this week was masterful. I mean, he, he sounded impassioned. He sounded like he cared when he was talking uh, to the man, the minister whose wife was killed in the massacre in Charleston, um, he seemed genuinely empathetic. When he says to people who are bringing up a specific issue, I want to talk to you about it and give you a private telephone number, that's that's great. And he does that. He does, in fact, give people a private telephone number so they can follow up on medical issues that they want to talk to him about. And that really does sell. I mean, it just it's warm. It's fuzzy. And I think it's authentic. Well, I think Bernie may surprise us in South Carolina. I know the polls show a blowout for Biden. However, Because Michael Bloomberg bought his way into the race, the ratings for the past two debates have been through the roof. More and more people are watching these debates, which means more and more people are getting to see who Joe Biden is. You know, I think a lot of people like the idea of Joe Biden. 
contrary to what you just said, I don't think he comes across on TV during these debates. I think you watch those debates. You see Biden and you say there's no way he's going to be able to take on Trump. I think Bloomberg and Steyer, uh, well, in South Carolina, Steyer has bought his way to 17 percent. Those uh, debates were watched. If you're an African-American watching those debates, you're thinking, why would I vote for Biden? Because you need the black vote in South Carolina. Of course you do. So if you're black in South Carolina, you're going, I'm not going to throw my vote away on Joe Biden. I liked the idea of Joe. He, you know, I liked Obama. I'm black. He's our first black president. So obviously Joe is a good guy. But why am I going to throw my vote away on this guy? As you just said, he's going to it's going to be a blowout uh, come Super Tuesday. And what we saw in Nevada is that Bernie got the the lion's share of Biden votes in the second round. That Bernie is, is the second choice when it comes to Biden voters. I think you're going to get a lot of Steyer voters who are not 17%. I don't see Tom Steyer getting 17% in South Carolina. I think they go to Bernie. I think a lot of Biden supporters especially black, are going to say, Bernie, Bernie. I think Bernie's going to surprise. I think he's going to surprise. Well, but, of course, the real I, winner I love will always be, be, the real winner will always be Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> of course it will. When he holds hands with Amy Klobuchar in, in a, a union of centrists, who nobody ever heard about until they ran for president. At um, Yitzchak Rabin, we're almost out of time. At Yitzchak Rabin's funeral after his assassination, his wife, Leah Rabin, turned to Benjamin Netanyahu and said, you got him killed. Your speechifying got my husband killed. There's a movie that you just saw called yeah. Incitement. Is it a documentary or is it what is it? No, it's a very clever, about uh, a third of it is newsreel footage, including of the murder itself. But then the other two thirds is an acted portrayal of the assassin and how he has been radicalized. And the idea of incitement, as as this goes on in the film, I don't want to give a lot away, but he talks to rabbis to find enough rabbis who will assure him that although generally murdering someone is against Jewish law, there are teachings of Maimonides and other great Jewish scholars who suggest that under certain circumstances, it's okay to kill someone in political office. So it's that incitement that runs through it. He's constantly seeking the help, the blessing of rabbis in Israel to confirm that what he wants to do, which, of course, is to kill Rabin. Were it's you a very well done film. Were you surprised that Bernie turned down an invitation to speak at AIPAC? I think it was very, it was very courageous. And, of course, just to show, uh, at least two other of the candidates also now have refused to go. Who? I mean, he has leadership. 
which candidates? You know, I honestly I can't remember. I, I just I just saw it fleetingly on the internet this afternoon. But there are now three. Okay. That will not be going. And, and that's finally, a, that's a, finally, yes. the, the lodge. What is the lodge? I want to tell you about the lodge, but don't forget religious nut of the week. Oh, we have to get to. Oh, let's get to religion. Let me tell you about the lodge. You know, I see a lot of movies, and I've always loved horror movies. And I saw a movie called The Lodge yesterday because I I had to, frankly, kill two hours. And there's a movie theater, and the the movie that was showing that it hadn't already started was something called The Lodge. I had only seen a review in the Washington Post uh, by the... Uh, critics in the post who I am convinced just frame hate movies. I don't know why they right. even write about them. And it was terrible. It was gave a terrible review. This is the only film I have ever seen that left me shaking walking out of the theater. It's a terrible more than beyond the green door. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that uh, you know that I think you're thinking of something else. Oh. Shaking. Off, I think yes, is what yes. you're. Please, right? keep it I don't know what that means, okay. but I think that's. I think you know what that means. Yes. No, but it's so it's it's so horrifying. It, again, I don't want to give too much away, but it's about a woman in a cult who becomes the lover of a a father. The father breaks up in the first few minutes. You see that he's broken up with his wife, who's taking care of their two kids. And then they all, the father, briefly, although he leaves, uh, his soon-to-be new wife and the two kids go to a hunting lodge and get caught in a snowstorm. Hmm. And it is a movie about religion, and it's a movie about family, and it is unsettling, unnerving in a way I have never seen done in a film before. Okay. Never. All right. So we have a segment on this show, and each week we come up with a new theme song. It's called the <laughs> Religious Nut of the Week. Yes, it is. Because they're crazy. <laughs> this is um, this is my effort to uh, broaden your horizons about just how strange Christian theology can become when it is held in the hands of nuts. Again, at the Conservative Political Action Conference uh, today, we heard from one Charlie Kirk. Now, a lot of people have heard of Charlie Kirk. He's about 26 years old. He's the founder of something called Turning Point USA, which is an effort to go on college campuses. And he has a, a claims to have organized something like a thousand college campuses to teach young conservatives, particularly young conservative men, how to be conservative. So he's giving a speech this morning and he says the following. Finally, we have a president that understands the seven mountains of cultural influence. Do you know what that means? The, the seven mountains of cultural influence. No, I don't. That's okay don't have to know but this is a theory very prominent among religious evangelical conservatives that god wants certain people to lead the seven areas of greatest cultural influence not only the church and the family the government media education business and 
the arts and entertainment. So it's the kind of thing that most people wouldn't know. Even most people at CPAC today, I'm sure, didn't know what this was a reference to. But to the religious zealots among them, this was a statement from a young genius recognizing just what our genius president wants to achieve dominance dominion over every one of the seven vital arenas of life in america and the world nut of the week thank you (laughs) the reverend barry w lynn uh my food is here do you hear that can you hang no. on for one second? My f- what perfect timing! Sure. Hang on. Yeah. For, can you can I you vamp? The food. Can you vamp while I get yeah, my food? I can. Okay, thank you. Vamp. Absolutely, vamp. Well, yeah. Well, I will we'll talk. Yeah. Okay. Now, now that David Feldman's not here, we can just pretty much take over the airwaves, and that's what I plan to do. Um, we got to most of the things I'd hope we would talk about today, but I was I also wanted to talk about just how absurd it was that uh, President Trump suggested through his staff and himself that we're going to get this vaccine very soon. It could come any day. And that's, of course, if we need it after the heat goes up in April and it kind of boils away the virus. This is what he thinks is going to happen. And, of course, his uh, longtime supported uh, and genius uh, member of the media, Rush Limbaugh, uh, just a few days ago suggested that uh, the coronavirus was not something to worry about because, as he said, it's just like catching a cold. Just like catching a cold. The f- Great. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He is, besides being a lawyer, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Christ. And follow him on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn, two R's, two N's. Can you stay on the line for one second, sir? Absolutely. Hang on. Let me get my food. Hang on. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump. This is a pledge episode. I'm David Feldman, davidfeldmanshow.com, and today I ask you for money. I'm going to ask you to go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. You're listening to The David Feldman Show.
you happy, self-actualized hump. All right, here we go. It's the end of the week, possibly the world. You don't know. And that means it's time for Liam McEnany. Each week we answer listener mail and we take your calls at 202-670-2752. Our phone number is 202-670-2752. One of the things that is happening is we're getting so many voicemails that we've had to move your questions that you write to Tuesdays. So we're going to have to talk about whether I'm doing that every Tuesday. Yes, you are. Until That's you get. <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you are. We're going to have to talk about that. Well, we're not going to talk about it in front of the children. And 202 670 is the number. Leave a message and Liam and I will, will play it. And Liam, we have a guest on the show. We have an actual listener who... who, Do you, who I, I hope you have, like, some Tonight Show music or something to play this guy on with. Of course I do. <laughs> That's your theme song, because you were wrong. <laughs> Please welcome Dave from the Rust Belt. <laughs> welcome, Hi, da David. Hi, Liam. Hi, Dave. Dave. Hey, Dave. Okay, we can turn the theme song off. You were, uh, so Dave is a listener. He wrote to me uh, last week and he said he wanted to help the show, that he's a fan of the show. And because Liam and I are both. How long have you been listening to the show? I've been listening for about a year. I feel like I tried it out before that, but uh, uh, I had to give it a little, uh, give, give it another try. I think once you listen to. Uh, eight or nine hours, you kind of get uh, hooked, you know. So one episode. <laughs> yeah, one year, one episode. That's pretty much how this works. <laughs> Dave from the Rust Belt, we don't want to violate your privacy. There are a couple of warrants out on you. No need to bring them up on this show. <laughs> so, Dave, you've been listening for a year now. What do you think of uh, David's uh, David Feldman's uh, relationship situation? Do you? I mean, as a listener, do you? Are you honestly interested in in what who he's dating and what's going on with that? Um. Yeah. Sure. That's it. You know, I'm, <laughs> you're not interested. I'm. I'm. I'm basically just 100 percent rooting for Dave. Thank you. Okay, Dave from the Rust Belt sent me an email, Liam, because we have a lot of lot to go through. We don't want to. But wait. you would imagine she's ugly, right? Okay, D Dave, ignore, ignore. I, Liam. I wouldn't say that. We, Liam, no, I what can't. Would you say? Liam, Liam, we can't waste Dave's time on the show. We have to waste his time while he's listening to the show. Okay, okay, I apologize. His yeah. time is very precious. Dave from the Rust Belt knows that you and I, Liam, want to interact with the listeners separate from the show. We wanted to do something in a chat room, and we couldn't make it work, and then we talked about TikTok or a live stream on YouTube. Not for the podcast, just to 
you know, do like what they call office hours with the audience, and we haven't been able to figure it uh, out. Yeah. No, I'm saying right. Oh, okay. And Dave emailed me because he listens to the show, and he suggested something with subreddits, and I don't understand. I know somebody set up a Reddit forum for us that we post uh -huh. to, but I don't understand Reddit. So, Dave, tell us about Reddit and, and what you're willing to do for us. And be okay, nice to the no. man. Hang on for one second. Liam, this is I'm a listener. Nice. This is listen. This is a listener. Okay. This man. I'm not sure why I'm on a business conference call about this podcast, but, uh, yeah, sure. It's Dave. From, nice. It's Dave from the Rust Belt. You alienate Dave from the Rust Belt. We lose 50% of my listeners. Right. I'm listening. I'm listening. Right, just be go polite ahead, today. Okay, go ahead. Salt of the earth, you sound Dave. Like a, you sound like a ventriloquist setting up a routine. <laughs> Liam, be nice to the audience. <laughs> I think Dave from the Rust Belt would go something <laughs> like this. Hello, dummy. No, you're the dummy. No, you're the dummy. <laughs> Dave, tell me about Reddit and what you're offering to do for us. Okay, um... Yeah, I, uh, Reddit is just a... Uh, so how was the workout? Basic... Liam, did you work out today? I did. I went to the gym. I yeah. started my couch to 5K. Uh-huh. I'm going to run a 5K. That's good. Good. And you uh, did spin class last week, right? I did spin class. I, wait, wait. I think, I think Dave from the Rust Belt has stopped talking. Let me pot up his... Dave, are you talking? No, I, I, I took a break. I wanted to find out about the workout. Oh, no. So, t no, no. Tell us about Reddit and what you're offering to do for us. Right. So, yeah, you already have a subreddit. Sorry, like, how much do you pay for the workout? Like, is that a gym? Well, I, I do belong to LA Fitness. That's pretty uh -huh. cheap. And then yeah. spin class is a separate thing that I yeah. go to. Right. And does I'm that include does the spin class charge extra? Or is that part of the package? I mean, you can get them at LA Fitness, but I go to a place called Evolve Cycle in the Valley. What is that? Usually and it's a, you know, it's like an eight-minute drive from my apartment. I see. Oh, wait a second. I don't think he's Dave. Well, yeah, that, that that's sounds interesting. So it's it's called a subreddit. So you, that, you basically right. you're going to do all the work, and then I'll just jump in and uh, and and uh, have fun. Well, this has been it's a good a business talk, Dave. Yeah, this is great. <clears throat> Thank you. And so you know all about Reddits and subreddits, and you're going to be part of the show. You're going to be part of the team, right? Yeah, well, it, it doesn't actually take that much work is what I was trying to... Uh, well, tell us tell what you. it involves. You know what? One of the great things about this show is we like to find out, you know, who's helping us, what they do. For, I'm, I'm interested in my listeners, and I want to share... I, I, have a, I have an intellectual curiosity that's unparalleled. Yeah, tell us about what it takes to, to do this work for me. Uh, um, the, the subreddit stuff. Go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah, Reddit is kind of like a message so, Like, have board. you bought new sneakers? Do they, like, how often do you have to buy sneakers if you're working out in, in a gym? I, I, I buy them like three or four times a year. See, I, it's I never need to buy new sneakers because I'm on the treadmill and there's no wear and tear on the sole. But you walk at like half a mile an hour. It's... Yeah, but still, you know, you ever, you ever work out barefoot? Or now with the coronavirus, what do you think? Do you even go to the gym anymore? Are you went, <laughs> yeah, aren't yeah. you afraid of contracting something? No, my gym's in, you know, Universal Studios. So it's clean, yeah. 
Wait, I think he stopped talking. Hey, that's fascinating, Dave, from the Rust Belt. Let me just say you're the salt of the earth. And, and- hey, Dave, I, I really love what you had to say. Can I ask you some questions about Reddit? Sure. Is he, oh, he's I'll still here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, isn't that where I can – I mean, I think Reddit is where I go to get my red pill information. Is that is that right? <laughs> I, I, imagine, I imagine there's a subreddit for that. Yeah, there's one just about everything. Because here's the thing was I used to just be a regular beta cuck going about my day, <laughs> allowing women to wow. dominate me in the world. Wow. Uh, then I found then I found the red pill subreddit and I took the red pill, wow. which is uh, yeah, it's like a philosophy based on a movie that was popular 20 years ago. Wow. And now I'm an alpha male. Wow. And I cuck other beta wow. males. <laughs> Is so that, is that, that what you did? That's tremendous. Yeah, that's uh, that that's something you could do on Reddit. Uh, but uh, there's just uh, innumerable subreddits for and all different topics. And David already does have one. Um, it's David Feldman Show. So it's Reddit slash R slash David Feldman Show. And uh, Sir, it's a rather. I have a serious rather, question. Yes. Yeah, can we do it instead through the uh, men's rights activist group? Because <laughs> I feel like as a man, I would like more rights. It just makes sense to me. So what are you, in all seriousness, uh, thank you, Dave, for, for doing this. What, what, what should we be doing? Thank you, Dave, for, yeah, that incredible, for playing along with that incredibly well thought out bit. Yeah. See? <laughs> so... Last week, that size C Sue thing—that that, we did really well with that one. That was spontaneous. We didn't really, I don't. I don't think we're going to be isolating that for Twitter. No, but go at Dave's in all seriousness. So what? What? What should? If Liam and I want to do like a live chat, where you know, wait, wait, first, Dave. What do you think of Feldman's improv skills? <laughs> yeah, you you. you uh, <laughs> There was some serious character. <laughs> what what can we do? What could Liam and I do to further alienate my listener? <laughs> how would it work? How would the how would your uh, chat work? Yeah, how do you do a chat? Well, usually they usually they call it an uh, AMA, which you familiar with that term means it on your website uh, for your email questions. Um, okay. And you just set up a thread, a post in your subreddit, and anybody who's interested, which you know you promote it on your show, maybe promote, maybe maybe I try to draw some support from some other subreddits that are like if you've been on other shows, um, let them know, hey, he's taking questions on this day, this time. I see. And um, you know, basically, it would be a lot like your mailbag, but you type, you know, obviously, you type in all the answers. It's not like a video thing. Um, so you type out, type in all your answers. People could respond to you. Um, of course, that most AMAs I've seen, the the um, I guess celebrity mm-hmm. don't really respond over and over to the same people, but they try to uh, answer as many questions as they can. Okay, I have um, an idea. Celebrity involved? I'm sorry. What did you say, Liam? Will there be a celebrity involved? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many people actually know who we are? I mean, could it? I hope it's well, going to be. In, I, it I'm should on your subreddit right now. <laughs> this might be a good litmus test. <laughs> There's one member. No, we have like 27 uh, no members posts? right now. We have no. tw- 
It's a, the, that's no, why I contacted you, David. 27 members. That's why I, that's why I contacted you. Well, you should have felt made me, I, I knew I had to do something for you when I saw that it was just years of you posting a link to each episode. Right. It used to be 24. And, we went up. I noticed we've gone from 24 at the beginning of the year to 27. Isn't that good? Not exactly exponential. <laughs> okay. I, I, uh, I, let's do this. One other person contacted me about helping. So what I thought would be fun is you come back Monday night when we record this and I'll bring the other guy on. And I'll try to sow division, but like some kind of competition between you two. I think it might be fun for you to hate this other guy and you compete for my love. Would that would that be okay? And Liam's love and approval? I bet it works as well as the bit we did at the top of the stage. <laughs> All right, Dave from the Rust Belt. I'm going to call you over the weekend. And I would like, I think it would be funny if Liam and I did an AMA and there were like three people who show up and we promised to do it for 45 minutes. And it's, it's just a disaster. And it devolves into name calling. I think that might be kind of fun. Where were you answering? I just posted. Oh, you did? I did. I just posted on the subreddit. Okay. Dave. Now, Liam, did you use the, is that is that Reddit account? Is that the one you used to email pictures of body parts to people? Because you might want to get a new one to do the AMA with. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm on my regular account, which I only use to send dick pics. Okay. Oh, oh good. And by that, it means Dick York, Dick Sargent, Dickie <laughs> Smothers, and, uh, okay. Hey, um. Dick Ritz. I'm sorry? Dick Ritz. Who is Dick Ritz? Tom, Dick, and Harry Ritz. Oh, the, the Ritz, Ritz brothers. brothers. Yes. Okay. Before you go, Dave from the Dick Rust. Hertz. Dick Hertz? Dick Hertz, founder of Hertz uh, Rent-A-Car. Oh, okay. Before you go, uh, we'll talk over the weekend. What is the subreddit you set up? What is the name of it? Hey, I didn't set it up. <clears throat> you already had it. Um, you've been posting in it. And it's reddit.com slash r slash david feldman show or if you just go to reddit.com you can search david feldman and you'll find it. okay somebody gonna, somebody set I'm that gonna, up for me and oh i actually set, saw that somebody else did another subreddit and i don't know why they did that they thought it was funny that yours was all lowercase or right something. that's the guy and who we're gonna did another one yeah that's the guy <clears throat> who i'm gonna have on the show monday who you're gonna have a sibling rivalry with. Okay. I think okay. we're going to have two competing sub. But so could you moderate a, an well, AMA chat? I, I'm not a moderator on your subreddit, so I don't have like any power to delete thread, delete comments or anything like that. Uh, could, well, why don't you set up Dave? I can be there. I can comment. I can set up the post or, or post the AMA for you. Or do, do we want to do a day from the Rust Belt subreddit? that celebrates the David Feldman show in the Rust Belt? <laughs> I, well, I think others. that might just confuse people to have multiple subreddits. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, connected to the show. Okay. So there's a, there's a, a, a broad named Molly Tamali who actually started your subreddit. 
Joe. I think you got to get in touch with her to make Dave from yeah, that's a good idea. the moderator. Uh, abroad? Yeah, you know. Abroad? Well, if, if I mean, there's I anybody at fault for the state of your subreddit, it's got to be the moderator, right? Oh, okay. All right, Dave. We'll talk on Monday. Uh, Dave from the Rust Belt, thank you for doing this. And we, sure, will, no we will talk on Monday. Be well. And uh, thank you. And, Dave, thank you for playing along with that great bit. Oh, and <clears throat> Liam, what is... What is what do we get for his being on our show? What does he have to give us? Oh, we get T-shirts. Yeah, we get T-shirts. You have to send us T-shirts. Stand by. One of our assistants will tell you where to mail the T-shirt. <laughs> Congratulations, Dave. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, you have to send us uh, a T-shirt or something your wife wears, along with some pictures and a handwritten note. That's for Liam. I don't need that. Are you, are you married? No personal I, stuff. No, I, don't answer that question. <laughs> Liam, be I nice to our list. Dave from the Rust Belt is married. That's... Dave from the Rust Belt. That's all we need to know. Yeah, just because you're ashamed of the woman you're dating doesn't mean Dave's ashamed of his wife. Dave? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I love my wife. <laughs> she... Dave is in the room with you. Just say yes if she is. <laughs> She's definitely going to listen tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dave. Dave We're gonna... If you need help, just knock once on your mic. <laughs> okay. We'll talk to you Monday night. Thank you, Dave. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye now. Thank you, Dave. I love talking the salt of the earth. Yeah, you know, us, I mean, a blue collar guy like that, I get along with him real well. Us blue collar, working class, Joe Six Packs. Yeah. And people like me who paternalize the working class. <laughs> and the feet. Well, you know what's good? Yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm listening. Oh, I thought you were going to say something. Let's do. I really feel like we're not on the same page today. We are. We just have a lot of voicemails to get to. Like a lie. I just feel like sometimes we're flowing real well, and then day like today, we're just kind of disconnected. Well, I, I think you were a little threatened by Dave from the Rust Belt. Well, no, I honestly, I was hoping he would be so good <laughs> that he could take over this segment. Without you, yeah. Yeah. Well, then I'd be threatened. Apparently. Okay, okay I don't know. Whatever judge sentenced me to do this podcast is up my sentence to do this two days a week. Okay, we have to get to the voicemails. I don't know if they're going to be nice to you, Liam, because you're not, you haven't given a full throated endorsement for Bernie Sanders. So this is Bernie. Well, after that, after that debate performance Tuesday, how could I? All right, you're asking for trouble. Good Lord, he was blown off the stage by Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg. That guy sucks. Okay, okay. Here we go. Voicemail number 19. Here we go. I mean, he was David, listening to your podcast, Greg Larkin here in Orange County, California. There is no email in the description. So the answer to your question, why is you're going to meet a fairy named Fairy, an inside joke? Joe Pesci played David Fairy in the Oliver Stone movie, JFK. Thank you, and keep up the good work. Thank you. I, that, that, I am a movie trivia robot. <laughs> That was a, a question. I know J Joe Pesci's filmography. We asked a question. Ask me anything. 
We asked a question two weeks ago about uh, Joe Pesci saying you're going to meet a fairy named Fairy and why that was an inside joke. Congratulations. We got a lot of responses. He's one of the few people who called 202-670-2752 to answer that question. Let's go to voicemail 16. Hey, thanks for the question, Billy Brown. Citizen Bacon here. Um, My favorite film. Well, um... Oh, excuse my rudeness. Um, hi, Neum in the Balls and Felt Up Man. Uh, Billy. I guess for sentimental reasons. I mean, you know, my dad died when I was in college, and, you know, he had a heart attack when I was still in high school. I thought he would die then. A heart attack still meant something, you know? Um, and, you know, he was real conservative in a lot of ways, and I am not. So we didn't really agree on a lot of stuff. Anyway, when I was a kid, there was one film, one movie we saw together in the theater that we both really enjoyed. I mean, he didn't like the outtakes where uh, there was a lot of cursing during the uh, credits, but um, I would say Being There might be my favorite film. (laughs) But it's more than just a movie or Faces of Death 4. Thanks for your question. Keep them coming. What's your favorite motion picture, Billy? (laughs) Was that Citizen Bacon? Is there, I don't know if that's oh, no, somebody imitating Citizen Bacon or if that's actually Citizen Bacon. I can't tell. I I was assuming when he started glibly talking about his father's death that it was a that was a gag. It's got to be. A I gag. wanted either that or there's a there's a blooper reel after being there that I didn't really know about. Okay, uh, that's a great movie. Being there. All right, let's keep this moving. We're plowing through it. I don't think that's Citizen Bacon. I don't think Citizen Bacon knows how to listen to the show. Oh, no, he does listen to the show. Okay, uh, voicemail number 12, number 12. Hey, David, number 12 here. Um, so this is for you and uh, Liam McNinney. <laughs> Hi, um, number 12. Really loving your shows. I just listened to both of your parts from the last two episodes. Want to call in? You know, I'm up to date and everything. Um, so first off, to speak on the psychedelics, uh, issue that you had, what if David, I know you talked about the door that you don't want to open. What oh, if boy. behind that door is a YouTube video with over a thousand views? <laughs> no, okay, no, I'm kidding. Um, you have a couple of videos over a thousand views, but it is kind of sad how much you have on there and the quality of your show and how little, um, is being done to promote it or make it look, you know, pretty or whatever. So, um, you really need to get on that, man. Um, and Liam, oh man, it's like oh. you skipped the whole Feldo the Clown phase and went straight to having a podcast that anyone could barely even find and listen to. Um, you know, you just watch out, man, because you're on your way to doing a speed run of David's life. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. And winning a bunch of you other speaking about Michael Brooks. I actually, David, I think that you are much better than Michael Brooks because you're both leftists. Um, you both kind of jerk yourselves off all the time. But the, the, the difference about you is sometimes you really just want to see him, you know, shoot it in their eye. And, uh, you know, you really just shoot yourself in the eye sometimes. And it's, you know, really, really, really great to listen to. <laughs> um, oh, and how we not talked about how, uh, Feldman, what you did with the clown thing is kind of the exact plot of the Joker. Um, so that's a little worry, worrisome to me. Oh. Um, you know, just want to say, oh, and Liam, you sound incredibly <laughs> ignorant because at one point you'll be like, oh, well, you know, I haven't looked into it. And then you'll be like, 
oh, well, you know, I'm going to uh, speak for all of America right now and tell you what all Americans right. think. Dude, shut up. Right. You're not like you're because not a there's sociologist. Some things I do you're know and some things I don't. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I told you it's going to get. I like this because this guy loves me. Right. I disagree right. with him about Michael Brooks, but I'm really yeah. digging what he has to say about you. About me, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, first of all, there's nothing worse than an angry hippie, and I, I mean that seriously. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't be. Just take it. I, I don't. Here's the thing. Let me just finish his thing for a second, okay? Hang on. Yeah, yeah. You're a producer, you're a writer, whatever it says in your Twitter. Which, first of all, you barely have <laughs> any followers on. Go look at somebody like Michael Brooks. He has a lot of followers. You almost have as many followers as you are following himself. people. I don't even have a Twitter, and I know that's sad. Okay, so look, man, just calm down. Um, you know, I'm try to get those views buddy. up. Try to get the membership up. Membership up. Um, get people to subscribe to your podcast. Maybe change the name because there are a lot of podcasts that have that name. Um, There's one other podcast that has. I can't think anything right else right now, so I guess I'll talk to you guys later. Okay, Uh, thank you for the call. And you know, I have to be honest with you, Liam. All you have to do is say you support Bernie. That's all you have to do. I will say I support Bernie the day he becomes the Democratic nominee. Okay. All right. I I, 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 good. We'll make history with having the first non-Democrat be the Democrat nominee okay, for the presidency. Right. I, I, I am an uncomfortable. This is my favorite part of the show. And right. it, the attacks on Liam are not. I don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy people <laughs> shitting on Liam unless it's funny. Yes, you do. <laughs> I, I really don't. I don't. I'd rather have people shit on me than you. No, You're no, my no, guest. Right. I, I, I don't want your feelings hurt. And I play the heel and, you know, uh, all right. But uh, I don't know what we're in for because I haven't screened these calls. All right. 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 All right. Uh, but just know, Liam, that these attacks are only because you're not voting for Bernie in the primaries. I, and I won't. <laughs> I'm voting okay. for Elizabeth Warren. OK. And that's going to that's going to stir the ire of my listeners. Well, it's it's just unfortunate that the left wing, uh, American left wing, is no longer intellectually open. Okay, all right. And it takes a brave man to make a fool <laughs> out of himself on my show. I just want you to know, I love you, and I'm grateful that you're doing this show. And I don't... was telling someone this week that I that I'm a regular on the show. Yeah, and he kind of got this look on his face, and then he goes, uh, "And I'll tell you after we turn off the mics who it was. You'll laugh." He's like, uh, so how much do you have to suck Bernie Sanders' dick on that show every week? <laughs> and I was like, ah, uh, nah, it's uh, 99% of it. And then I told him I'm not a Sanders fan, and he got this really relieved look on his face. All right, I'm curious. Okay, voicemail 40. Yeah, seriously, ask me after, I'll tell you. Okay, voicemail 44. How many voicemails oh, do you have? Hi, Liam. Uh, this Maybe. is Jody, the Canadian who lives in England. Uh, I just wanted to say, uh, last week's mentions of Cy Sperling over and over again, shameless plugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was great. Dude, she's, she's got a sexy voice and she's funny. Holy uh, shit. And she's Canadian. She should be, uh, she should be, uh, Fel- Mrs. Feldman number four. Yeah. Well. I mean, the great, it's a, the great almost, thing about almost, being Mrs. Feldman number four is you know she's marrying me for love. 
<laughs> Definitely not for the money. Definitely not for the money. Okay. Voicemail. <laughs> Here we go. Let me just do this. That was funny. That, by you. the way, thank you, Jody. That was great. Voicemail 12. Um, so I'm sorry for losing my temper a little while ago. Um, you can go ahead and say back for if you want, or you can go ahead and, you know, I don't really care what you do with your show. Um, dude, your world is very small, okay? You're on Twitter. You're, 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 you're complaining about how people, um, will brigade somebody on Twitter, on the internet. Uh, it's like you understand how, how unbelievably small and inconsequential that is, um, compared to the amount of voters that are completely inactive in this country that could be lifted up and um, mobilized by the words of somebody like Bernie Sanders. And I just, like, I, I can't wait, believe Dave, that you would... Dave, wait, would... wait, start this one over. I, I didn't hear a word he said. I think he's attacking me. I'm playing these out of order. But I like it. He's angry. This is good. But I'm taking it personally. He's mad at me. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure he's taking it. He's mad at me. No, this he's mad at me. Because he was piling on my Twitter before. Oh, I thought it was piling. Oh, is this is, is this the guy from before? This is a fucking angry hippie. Oh, oh, this is the. Well, he sounds different. Okay, no, let's get. It's the same guy. All right, let's get. I thought I was playing this out of order. And we're, wait, wait, start it over. I'm I sorry. Can't, I, was I, can't, too hard. I can't. I can't. Two zero two six seven zero twenty seven fifty two. Behind uh, any. I, any sort of uh, moderate dem- I, See? and e- even here I'm losing my temper because I'm having to try to explain something to somebody that is so clearly um, <laughs> in another league okay the, the the things that you're fighting for the um the the, the oppressed people you are you are are almost well, on the side you. of the oppressors now I understand you have various things in your life that that that, that make it so you are obviously not an oppressor. Um, things that make it, you've had, you know, a difficult time, um, you know, dealing with, uh, uh, bigotry and things like that. But, um, you need to understand that there are so. He's going after me, I think. No, no, no. He's absolutely going after you. No. And you know dude, He's going after me, not you. Better you go after you this way than, like, shooting up a school. Okay, hang on. Don't even talk that way. Hang on. So many more people <laughs> that are, um, um, in terms of, like, real monetary, monetarily, they are, um, much, much, much less than you, and uh, it's it's just so much more impossible. And 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 this and the things that Bernie Sanders are saying uh, would be so much more of a light um, than they probably seem to you. I mean, I'm sorry, but I look you up on Google and I see your your fucking pictures on Google Images, dude. If your pictures on Google Images and you 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 write things on the internet, it's like you 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 don't have a real life. If you do things on Twitter, you don't. You don't. I'm sorry, you don't. Get off Twitter and maybe go do things in your city. Go speak to real people or move somewhere that there are less uh, people that are more, um, you know, uh, worse off than you are. Um, and, and help them. Help the less affected. But, but just get off Twitter and stop complaining about people who are on your side. Because you're making the people who are not following politics think, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't vote for Bernie. If you think we're so ignorant and we don't know, why don't you go out there and start... Um, educating people on socialism or educating people on healthcare, and and maybe turn on the cheek and act like this big, you know, moral um, high ground person that you're trying to tell David he should be, and just move on, okay? And understand that these people are ignorant, they're bigoted, and they're not going to vote for you anyway, okay? So how about you be the bigger person, be an effing adult, okay? Get off Twitter and work for this goddamn president, Jesus Christ, or president, but fucking whoever he is, Bernie Sanders, my goodness. I don't know who he was going after, but I like. I, it sounded like he was going after me at the end. Yeah, at the end, I liked it at the end. I thought he, I thought he had a strong finish. 
I was nervous he was going after me, but I think he, right. uh, I like the ending. Boy, I, it, when he was attacking me, I got scared. You took some friendly fire there. Yeah, I know. Okay. All right. Good ending, though. Happy ending. I came. <laughs> all right. Liam, you just have to get on board the Bernie train. That's all. Voicemail 15. Voicemail 15. Hey, David and Liam, this is Tom in Portland. I, I felt obligated to call back in. I was scared, uh, <laughs> Be nice. It's Tom from Portland. All right. Now, he, uh, let me just, uh, his dad was in World War II. His yes. dad served in World War II. Yes. And uh, then he, after the war, he saw someone die in a factory accident. Yes. Uh, and he was in the union in this factory. Yes, let's continue. And now Tom also works at a union job, right? He like yes. does delivery or something. And, and you've accused him of being an alcoholic. Well, he's called in drunk on a couple of occasions. That maybe he was nervous. Maybe. About his alcoholism. <laughs> right, let's get back to Tom from Portland, who's a, you know, a regular here. Okay. You made peace with him last week, right? Yeah. Okay. And then last another week, listener uh, came in and Pearl Harbored him. Yeah, hang Right, hang on. Um, spot where I was um, poked by that. David, in particular, I just killed me the uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers reference. Uh, absolutely amazing because uh, I'm one of seven boys. Uh, <sighs> I, must, I have seven brothers. The, uh, the Oregon thing about Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, I've had a similar theory, but not about Oregon, about the inner Mountain West. Hmm. For years I've told the story that... Um, those people stopped before they got to the green side of the mountains. They stopped in the desert, not because this will do, but because everybody else on the journey said, you people suck. You stay here. You can't go across to the other side of the mountain where you can walk across the fish. They're so fat in the streams. Hmm. So the Intermountain West, they didn't get seven brides for seven brothers. They got, uh, you know, one... They have their polygamy math. thing going on there, and as everybody knows. Anyway, I'm, I'm a little math there. Why don't I just delete this? Um, bless your beautiful heart, where is Go, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Last week, uh, we were talking about why. What? What? Uh, what? We what were happened? talking about why people from Oregon are so ugly. Right. Do you want to know? Oh, yeah. Play that. Play that voicemail from Tom. Yeah. Would you like to know why Hispanic women from Mexico and South America are so beautiful? Why? Because they're genetically predisposed towards beauty. Because the Mayans and the Aztecs used to sacrifice virgins. They used to throw the virgins into volcanoes. Right. Uh huh. Now. Between you and me, if a woman's a virgin, why is she a virgin? Because she's ugly. Because she's ugly. Now, women right. listeners, don't write in. This is eugenics. This is selective. What is it called? Selective breeding? Self, self, what is it called in evolution? Selective breeding, yeah. That they were throwing virgins into the volcanoes. And that's why the women who were left were all gorgeous. That's why you, you go to Mexico, you go to Brazil, you go to Colombia. They're all gorgeous because they weeded out the, uh -huh. the, the, the virgins, if you know what I mean. 
Right. Okay. Those are my so, uh, theories about so just, race. Just, just for the record, <laughs> this is the liberal guy saying this. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I got into trouble. Now I got five. I got three last week, and now it's up to five. The the people complaining about midwives. My joke about midwives. <laughs> okay, I apologize for those jokes and the ones that are coming up right. next. And for the next ones. <laughs> All right, here we go. Voicemail. I hope this is correct. 17. Hey, Bacon. It's me, Sausage. I'm just pretending to call about the uh, union you wanted to start. Listen, call me back. The number is 366-856-64. You got that? Look, if you can't remember, it spells footlong. <laughs> Wait a second. There was Citizen Sausage from Chicago. Right. But this guy Citizen. Yeah, Citizen Sausage, and this guy is Citizen, uh, what? Pork Chop? Hey, Bacon. It's me, Sausage. I'm just pretending to call about well, Citizen Sausage. Citizen Sausage, but he had a Boston accent in that, and he claims to be from Chicago. Right. It's confusing. Okay, voicemail. I, I got to say, this is a bad crop of voicemails so I think far. they're brilliant. I think you're just trying to shoot the segment in the foot. I, I just think... Uh, a little quality control. That's all I'm all saying. Right. Voicemail 19, 19. Hey, though This is Citizen Porkchop. I'm over here there in Colorado. Go. I just want to know how much you're paying for this sort of Citizen Bacon treatment. Can you fly me to New Hampshire? Can you fly me to Las Vegas? Will you buy me in on a few tables? What does this take? I mean, I can bring my cell phone around and just record people on the street, go to wherever things are happening. I can check my Facebook. Anyway, uh, great show. I love how it's six hours long because I have no life. <laughs> so why don't you hire me and give me some money? Thanks, Feldo. Yeah. I know you got it. Well, there's an idea. One of us in each state. Yeah, take care, buddy. Contributors' money. There's an idea. Well, there you go. And uh, now, feel this free. Raises a, this raises a question for me, David, and yes, it's sir. a serious question. Uh, you don't like it when I say that these voicemails are left by people who have clearly just taken two or three prescription Ambien and went to sleep for the night. Yeah. And then woke up in the middle of a sleepwalk and left all kinds of nonsense <laughs> on your voicemail. You don't like it when I say that. And yet you refuse to stop playing voicemails like that. He was a reasonable man who wants to be part of the show. <laughs> and he listens. <laughs> Did he, he listened, attack you? Did he say anything mean to you? If he listened... He would know not to ask you for money. Well, hang on. Did he say if anything? You wanna, if you want to be on the David Feldman show, the first thing you have to do is say, I will do it for free. And that's all it takes. Like me. That's the entire audition process. All right. I should mention if you have a problem and you need help with <laughs> a drinking problem, go to aa.org. This is for my listeners. Go to aa. AA.org and find a meeting near you. It helped me and it could help you. That's all I'm saying. I believe Liam 
I believe. Are you an AA, David? I, it helped me at one time. But let's go on. Uh, By the way, if you also, if you have a drinking problem, there's a hotline you can call. Yes, and that number is 202-670-2752. And Liam and I will right. convince we'll you. you. We'll help you, you know, realize that you don't really have a drinking right. problem. Right. It could be, it could be a lot worse. Yeah, we'll, we'll play a couple of voicemails for you. All You'll right. understand. All right. Uh, was this, uh, okay, so that, was that 19? What did I play there? Hey, Feldo. Okay, we played that. So voicemail 18. Hi, David. Hi, Liam. Wanted to thank, uh, Liam just for his, uh, just huge contribution to the show. I think he, oh, this, is, this is not going to be pretty. No, no, he's, he's thanking me. I think I, this is a problem. I don't know. Oh. I don't know if I want to hear this. This guy sounds. I want to too, hear it. It sounds too confident. No, no, no. He sounds very friendly. I like. <laughs> I like. I like. <laughs> right, go ahead. This is, I, I, all right. Here we go. There we go. But now, if it turns out that you get incoming. Yeah. There was a guy. You know, the voicemail nineteen. Nice guy. He didn't mention you. And you took right. a shot at him. I didn't take a shot at him. I, w I expressed concern for his clear prescription drug abuse. <laughs> okay. Here we that go. Was a, that was an act of love, David. I, I'm not encouraging an adversarial relationship with my listeners, Liam, although it makes me very happy because somebody right. has to be mean to them, and I can't. <laughs> somebody has to... Slap these kids into shape. You're like the you're like the DI, the right. this drill instructor. You're like Jack Webb, right? right? Well, you know, it's like you said to me off off mic before we started. Mm -hmm. You want Elizabeth Warren to win, but you're afraid of losing your fan base if you just say that. So no, I'm the guy who says that for you. I don't want to. I'm voting for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get. I, I have a feeling this guy's this guy comes. He's loaded for Liam, or just loaded. But, now, here's here's my yeah. question before you start. All yeah. right. Uh, if if the Dow Jones just completely bottoms out and punishes all these millionaires and billionaires, won't Donald Trump be the greatest socialist president ever for completely redistributing the wealth all at once? Well said. Well said. Let's get back to this attack on you. <laughs> I assume it's an attack. Okay. No, no, no. It's, it, well, he was thanking me. Oh, and okay. I think that's what makes you nervous, as you know he, he's a fan. Maybe he's going to go after me. Let's see. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Really adds a spirit of middle of the road, sort of uninspired, kind of bourgeois bullshit. <laughs> and uh, I just find that a refreshing turn of opinion on the show. Uh, kind of didn't really understand it, uh, but Googled him, saw the, uh, saw some pictures. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, what? a little disappointed in, uh, Zach and Barry, uh, kind of starting to sound a little bit what, like what Liam around mean? the edges. Uh, Zach can criticize, yeah. but, uh, you know. Being intelligent and, question and reasonable. Is, uh, does he support the, uh, most pro LGBTQ person of color, working person, poor person, candidate on the ticket. Elizabeth and uh, Barry, Barry, we tried the indulgences, and down that road does lie the devil. Well, anyway, Liam, thank you again, and uh, you know, 
Keep fighting, man. Good luck with everything. Stay strong. I don't need luck, pal. Well, that was okay. That was that was. You know what? That was sarcasm. He, he colored within he the lines. Moved. He colored within yeah, the that, lines. I like that call. Honestly, that was a little uninspired, in my opinion. He's going after you because you don't support Bernie. And this is Bernie. You're in Bernie country, man. You know who was good was last week uh, the person who just went, really went after me for being what they claim middle of the road. Yeah, yeah. But these are good calls, except for the, you know, I, I okay, we have two more to get to. Good job today, Liam. We're uh, two more calls. Okay. Two more calls. Or maybe one. It might be just this might be the last call. Let's see. Hey, you have a fabulous show. Been listening for a long time. My only suggestion would be find a replacement for Liam. All right. Well, well, well. <laughs> I'm not going to play that. Hang on. No, no, play. No, 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 first no. of all, there's no way you weren't going to play that. No, I swear to you. I'm, I don't screen second, these. I see like a trend. Second of all, let's just play it. I, I want to hear what this guy has to no, say. No. He right. sounds very intelligent. Hi, David. This is Chris in Kansas. We recently had a history professor on to talk about the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, it was a great segment. I hope you have him on again. During the segment, you kept asking, who was the first American emperor? I just finished watching the 76 I, Claudius, mm. so this was already on the top of my mind. At the end, Claudius says he was a terrible emperor because uh, he was too benevolent, pacifying the people to the dangers of having an emperor and steering them away from a republic. With that in mind, I suggest that the first American emperor would be FDR. Hmm. Amazing, as amazing as most everything he did was, it was the beginning of the idea that a powerful president is what we need to solve our problems. Uh, can't wait to hear your thoughts and keep up the great work. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I understand what you're saying. FDR created the bureaucracy that we have in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Or Lincoln. Maybe Lincoln was uh, too benevolent to the South. Maybe he should have engaged in total destruction and rebuilt the South in our own image the way we did with Japan and Germany. And they ended up becoming a better version of America than America. But we're all out of time. That's a good way to end a segment. Saying that I we, want to hear that guy who thinks I need to be replaced. No, I don't want to play that. I, I, I don't want the kind. Here's I don't want to do a show where you come on and my listeners attack you because um, yeah, it's not interesting. It's, it's not. Interesting. It's, I agree. No, it's got to be a one way street where Liam attacks the listeners, but they don't. <laughs> I'm serious. I don't. I don't want because he's playing the heel, and I've done this on other people's shows, and it's you know to it, just attack Liam. Liam's a genius. He's one of the fastest people I know. He's got a great comedy mind, and he understands that this is not going to be entertaining. You if, if I quote quote you on that, yeah, if we suck up to the listeners, it's not funny. And you know what? Uh, Bernie Bros should take it. You know, we dish it out. So, you know what? If you, if you can dish it out, you should be able to take it without pushing back, especially, um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm, <clears throat> leave Liam alone. Okay? Or you can email me at liam at heyitsliam.com. Although there are some people, uh, there, there are a couple of guests on my show who get into it on Twitter and Facebook with the listeners. 
and I don't yeah. understand that impulse. I kind of ignore them on Twitter. <laughs> but why are you do enjoy, do you enjoy the fight? Not on Twitter. I get bored on Twitter. But do you enjoy the fight? Is that something that excites you? No, I enjoy when someone leaves a shitty voicemail. It amuses me because of the all the work and then hearing their voice and then hearing a guy who's like, I looked at a picture of you and uh. you know that's not the voice of an attractive man, David. Yeah. You know <laughs> I think we all of us painted a mental picture listening to that guy's voice. See why would I be mad at that? The voicemails have changed the dynamic of that guy that guy who was like, I think you should replace Liam. He sounded like a cartoon monster. Everybody He sounded angry. like he used to be like, David Foman, if you know what's good for you, you gotta replace this Liam Maganini guy, see? <laughs> I'd hate if something happened to your podcast, David. All right, here's the deal. Liam, (laughs) here's the deal. These are the ground rules, folks. Uh. You write in, you leave a message, (laughs) Liam shits on you, and you keep your mouth shut. You don't fight back. You take it. Oh, no, no, because, one, Tom from from Portland has become a great addition to the show. Oh, okay. I mean, he's boring, but he's a great addition. <laughs> the, the man isn't boring. He's got advanced stages of cirrhosis from the drinking. And we have to be kind to, to our listeners. You're right. He's getting wet brain. That's why he's, he's ended his his segment with a song today. He's Holy getting, shit. what'd you call it, wet brain? Uh, wet brain. What, is that what they that's call when, it? That's when you drink so much that basically uh, parts of your brain just stop functioning altogether. And it becomes permanent if you don't quit drinking. Hmm. Okay. 202-670-2752. If you have a drinking problem, call this number. Liam, no, uh, that's our number. And leave a voicemail. And uh, feel free to uh, tell us what's on what's on your mind. How was Vitello's before we go? Vitello's was great. Um, Jimmy Pardo is great. I actually got to meet him and talk to him for the first time, mm-hmm. which is like I met him in passing a couple times. This is the first time I actually got to say hey. So that was cool. And Why don't you do Donna. a show? Why don't you do a show? Uh, I am going to reach out to him this weekend and see if he's interested. Mm, okay. Now that I've met him personally, maybe he would be. I don't know. Right. Well, I, uh, I, I'm sorry. I said, why don't you ruin his show? <laughs> Did I say do? Why don't you ruin his show? I thought you meant do like fuck. Oh, yeah. Over. <laughs> I'm going to completely fuck a show. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Vitalis was good. You had an audience? Yeah, Chris Titus. There was an audience. Uh, Any listeners yeah. to the David Feldman show? No, of course not. Nobody. I thought, it was, I thought it was really funny. We plugged it for three months straight. And nobody? Nobody from your show. Nobody. I, I thought it was above. I thought it's an above an Italian restaurant. Maybe Dave from Carlsbad's girlfriend would have wobbled in, staggered, gotten a fire crew to do give her the jaws of life <laughs> to wedge her out of her bedroom, mm-hmm. and then gotten into an ambulance. And all right, 
and you know, got in an IV drip of uh, gravy drip, uh, IV drip of gravy, so that you know she wouldn't die. All right, all right. <laughs> Bernie Ho, baby cat. Any communication? No, she's. I'm telling you, she's afraid to really get close. All right. She's afraid of me. Leah McEnany's podcast is Tell Your Friends, and he- I've got a live. I've got a live stand-up show March 10th at the Improv. Uh, clearly, none of you will be there, but just <laughs> in case someone accidentally listening in California wants to go, uh, Eddie Pepitone will be headlining. It's at 7.30 at the Improv Lab, uh, March 10th. Okay. If anybody's listening, please show up and pretend you heard this on the David Feldman show. <laughs> Wait, that doesn't make any sense. No. Hey, it's Liam is your Twitter handle and working class fancy is your comedy CD. I love you, Liam. This love you my, too. I, this, I love doing this. This is, this is just so much fun and stay on the line. Liam McEnany. You're listening to the David Feldman show. You happy self actualized hump. Thank you for listening. This has been a special pledge episode of the David Feldman Show. Please, if you want to help keep this show going and make it better, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. Give whatever you can. I also invite you to shop on Amazon via the David Feldman Show website. We are lousy with Amazon banners when you click on them takes you to Amazon, shop away. We get a small percentage of everything you purchase. If you can't afford to donate, and if you're not shopping on Amazon because you uh, love Main Street and the environment and unions, there are other ways to help me. You can leave a good review on iTunes, share this show with your friends, share this show with your enemies, and visit our new merch, our new merch page and buy a T-shirt or a mug to demonstrate your erudition to your co-workers. I'm David Feldman. Thank you for listening.